Welcome back to A Musician and a Filmmaker, the podcast where we always say the title right at the start and don't forget until halfway in. Uh, <laughs> always. I'm Greg Phipps. I'm Jordan Randall. And this is going to be a bit of a rougher episode than the first two because I am very busy with making my documentary. Uh, so we haven't had time to uh, be as dedicated to the podcast, but... Hopefully, within the next three weeks, the movie will be done and released, and we can talk about it, and I'll have a relatively freer schedule until I won't. So, how are you doing, Jordan? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm excited about uh, your creative, uh, you know, output. Um, Excited to see your film work. And it's amazing that you have, you know, films coming out, because this podcast is called A Musician and a Filmmaker. Yes, and would would you believe, Greg? I have been working on an album, which will be you coming have. out soon. Yes, so together we'll have music and film. Well, that that fits because I was gonna suggest we should talk about um, the new Animal Collective album, isn't it now? But if it comes <laughs> out next month, your album, then all the more reason to. Not make that the official album for the episode, but still talk about it because, of course, we're going to talk about it. Of course, we're going to talk about it. I feel like the the intro segment for every episode is basically, you know, a mini Animal Collective podcast. Right. And so I so last time, did we have the album details like the name, the al- the artwork and the track listing? You know, I don't think we did. You know what I think it is? I think we got that, like, the day I edited and uploaded the last episode, even though we had recorded it, like, a week before that. Right, so no. right. Um, so it's called Isn't It Now? Question mark, which is a lyric from the song Defeat. Uh, personally, I don't love the title. <laughs> I get why they chose it. I would have preferred something like, you know, I I don't think they've often done, like, the name an album after a song title thing and if they had done like magicians from baltimore which is one of the tracks on the album that would have been perfect or even sea of light which was the original title for and one of the lyrics of the song genies open but i'm not the band so i can't make these decisions (laughs) for them we can only just do our speculating and daydreaming until the reality sets in when the time comes that's true. I, uh, I I like the album title, um, but you know what I really would have liked is another lyric from the song Defeat. I would like the album to just be titled, Yep. Yep. And that's it. <laughs> that's like that eight would... minutes into the song, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, when they now... do it live, he says it like three or four times. I feel like he says it every time that it does that little part. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm just imagining that, but it's the best part Only of the song. Only one made it into the... <laughs> And it's just like, it's clearly just fan service. Like, I feel like they're probably not going to do that. Somebody probably bugged Davey Tarrant, like a show or something. Are you going to put the yeps in the song? He was like... Well, it's interesting that they recorded everything in December of 2021, and we didn't see them until like three months later after they had already recorded everything. That's so. true. That's true. And and so, yeah, that's kind of weird, right? Because like the, um, the serpent in the water lyric is different, right? Yeah, we talked. We kind of talked about that last time. How like, how it uh, they had a lyric in the song already recorded, which was what was the final one? Crawling from the serpent. 
crawling from the serp. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, and then in the live version, it's uh, there was not a serpent. So he already changed the lyric again <laughs> after recording it and gaslit all of us into thinking that's what it would be in that second <laughs> section, like right when the drop happens. The the guy's a madman, you know. Yeah. So unpredictable. We got our album cover, and apparently it's made out of fabric from Joann's, as users of the Discord server quickly figured out. Oh, yeah? They were able to identify where the fabrics came from, from Joann's yeah, fabric? Yeah, and they went and got some samples of their own, and I've seen people make... Uh, they're talking about trying to recreate making the album cover with, like, uh, construction paper and a couple other things, like, basically doing the same collage that AV did, but, like, as sort of a DIY art project... And then right. I've also seen other, like, creations. Like, there's one user who made, a, like, a little stuff, like a plushy cat wizard thing to represent. It's like a wizard on the cover. It's not like a face, but it kind of is. Like, there's eyes, but there's no nose or mouth, and it says the album title. And then, like, if you look at it, like, from far away, you can kind of see there's, like, a hat and, like, a robe and, like, a hand. So it might be, like, a wizard or something, but... It's the magician of Baltimore. It's one of them. Yes. Because there's four, at the very least. Theoretically. Yeah. Maybe and they're now just there's talking billboards. Some... Yeah, that's right. How many billboards are there? Is there just one? Because I feel like I see pictures and it looks like it's the same billboard. I want to say at least three, up to five. And I think they're all pretty much, if I recall, they're all on the East Coast, but there might be one in LA. And it just it's just orange and it just says, isn't, isn't it now, right? Yeah, and no other information, and it's like no, no website, no phone number, no anything. That you, <laughs> like, like if you just see that when you're walking by, you're like, the fuck is that? Because I feel like but, at this point in time, Animal Collective is a fairly niche band. Like, you know, do you think there's a lot of people that are just sort of like organically finding out about Animal Collective right now and being like, oh, this is a cool band? Or do you think it's like mostly people that kind of like, fell in love with them and you know their quote-unquote heyday and are just so about this band that they you know are like you know they're the kind of people that'll see that billboard and just like start foaming at the mouth you know or or is it possible that someone's gonna see that and be like what is that and look it up online and be like whoa i've never heard of this band but this is good i think it's about 50 50 maybe yeah. 60 40 like old heads new heads because like that song "College" that from Sung Tong is like a forty-five second, essentially a joke track where the only lyric mm -hmm. is "You don't have to go to college." Uh, it randomly just like got into their top five on Spotify and got like a million plays. And I think it's because it was like a TikTok meme or something. No, but I don't think anyone actually confirmed. I don't know if no, anyone actually no, no, found no. a TikTok, but it just randomly got a bunch of listens. So somehow that got popularity. I right. think it's not entirely unrealistic that, you know, there are just organically new fans because of, like, I didn't find them until 2014, and it wasn't like there was anything big Animal Collective happening that year. It just happened to be the year I listened to Meriwether Post Pavilion. So, I think, you know, there's plenty of Zoomers out there that are entering into their own, you know, high school phase of discovering music and whatnot, and... There's all these Topster charts and Last FM Scrabble charts and all these things people do to share the music they're listening to on the internet now. So 
I think it's just you have more of a sort of hunger for new music, just like people just want to listen to new stuff. Like even if they just listen to it once and move on, I think there's they're trying to go through all of the the hallmarks of the indie sphere if that's what they're into. So when people are like, Oh, what should I check out if I like, you know, like this Boards of Canada or Radiohead or what have you, Animal Collective will inevitably come up because they're just sort of I mean, they had, like, the biggest indie album of 2009. I mean, that's, like, almost 15 years ago, but it is what it is. Like, they were the name in indie music for a hot minute. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting, because, like, uh, I think I was listening to an interview with A.B. Terror, and he was saying something along the lines, like, or the, the guy who was interviewing him, it was, like, I don't know, was, the guy was, like, pretty straightforward with his questions. I think he was saying something along the lines of, like, do you consider yourself like a legacy act at this point or whatever? And it was interesting because he was saying like, maybe because, but it's also interesting because it's like, you know, whenever you find out about a band that was kind of like bigger in a different time period, it's, it's kind of this like weird experience. Cause like, I think he was talking about it in relation to like the grateful dead. It's like, you know, when they were listening, like when animal collective were, you know, figuring out what they liked and starting to make music of their own, they were like, finding out about the grateful dead it's like okay like jerry garcia is like long dead but there's this you know treasure trove of music that you can go through like endlessly even though you're so far removed from the actual time period you've you've created like a new time period where you can spend like literally years going through grateful dead albums singles bootlegs outtakes all that shit right and i feel like animal collective is the same thing like even if you jump in now like you'll still be discovering them for like 10 years because there's just so much music. Right. That's kind of my been my recent experience with Ween. Not to transition too early to our <laughs> album we're going to talk about. We still have Animal Collective stuff, but it is worth bringing up that, yeah, that's kind of like I'm still discovering Ween B-sides and I've been listening to them solidly for like three years at this point. And I saw them live back in uh, May in Dallas, which was awesome. But like they haven't put out an album since 2007. But because there is so many B-sides and people are uncovering all this stuff and, you know, due to also in part the band members kind of releasing like bootleg tapes online, uh, we haven't had one in like 12 years, but still they've contributed to the amassing of all these uh, rarities. So I think, you know, especially with Animal Collective, they're more than willing to share stuff like that when the time is right because of the O'Brien system and other promotional things and also they just they're not adverse to nostalgia but they don't like to linger on it you know so which i guess yeah, for sure. is thematically fitting because the album is a continuation of the era of time skiffs and there's all this talk of time and what have you and you know i think the whole stripping it down and sort of going back to a grateful dead style is kind of plays into that mm-hmm. um so uh, let's talk about the track list real quick because we would be remiss if we didn't. It's basically... We should also probably say that, like, you know, amongst all the, the fans that are on, you know, Discord or Collected Animals and stuff like that, or even Spirit Posting, there was a lot of speculation leading up to this track listing release, right? Like, yes. everyone, every day, maybe even every hour, was throwing in their, you know, their two cents about how they thought that this this album was going to flow yes and i am definitely I, guilty of that 
Yeah, and I, me too. And I think it's safe to say that basically 99.9% of everyone's predictions was absolutely wrong. <laughs> yes, especially mine, because I was adamant. <laughs> and we talked about it last time. I was like, Defeat has to be the closer. And uh, Defeat is in the smack dab middle of the album. Which I think so, I actually predicted. I think I did say that. Yes. I think I said side, beginning of side, well, effectively all of side C. And uh, lo and behold, it's such an animal collective thing to do, you know, just throw that right. fucking giant behemoth right in the middle. Just really screw with people, you know. That's their that's their thing, right? They just want well, it's kind of what they did with <laughs> Cherokee, because, like, when that song was only a live thing and, you know, pre-COVID, that was because they effectively opened up the show with it. I mean, they opened with Banshee Beat, but the first new song of the era, the first performance of it was Cherokee into what became Car Keys. So mm-hmm. I would ass- I just assumed based on previous Animal Collective live eras that that would be what they would end up doing on the album. But then, of course, COVID happened and all their plans got changed around. And then, of course, like we were saying, in typical Animal Collective style, they did what people least expected them to do, which was open with Dragon Slayer. Though it's not a bad opener, it's just not the... You know what I mean? Like, it seemed fitting in the live setting to be the Mm -hmm. opener, and now it's not. But I don't think anyone expected them to open this new album with Soul Capture and make it the first non-22-minute single for the album. Soul Capture, like... Did you did you read this or hear this in uh, some interview around probably around maybe that Pitchfork festival thing a couple years ago? Um, they were saying something along the lines of like they didn't know what was going to happen with Soul Capture. They're like they they likened it to some like weird cousin that shows up every Thanksgiving or something like that. Right. I recently like, remember reading a blurb of AV saying that they when the COVID lockdown happened, they were like, okay, we're going to make a shared folder. Uh, that we all have access to and anytime one of us writes a new song we're just going to put it in that folder and see if anything comes of it uh he was the only one that actually did and soul capture was the only song that <laughs> came of that little effort so oh so it's like kind of like a by default they they put yeah that i guess so. <laughs> but all these other songs predate the <laughs> pandemic uh for the most mm. part i mean genie's open in its That's current state really old i mean yeah yeah, that was like Sung Tong's uh, reunion tour era, right? Yeah, and it was just like an acoustic, repetitive... It's a section... Fic- See, this is what happens when we don't edit the episodes. I just can't talk. Uh, <laughs> you hear us for who we really are. <laughs> yeah, all of our, our warts and all. But um, <laughs> uh, Genie's Open, I think the current version... The original version was just like a stripped-down acoustic little thing, and it was effectively the second half of the current version just mm-hmm. looped um, and like a really basic thing. And then they changed it at some point during the hellscape that was the pandemic. And it became an eight minute song as opposed to a three minute song. This is their longest album to date. That's not up for debate at all. It is 64 minutes long, which that's, I don't even that's pretty long, yeah. What's the next uh, longest spirit. They're gone. Spirit. They vanished. Probably like right at sixty minutes or sixty-one. Are, are we including solo albums? Because Eucalyptus is pretty long. Oh, that's true. I think. Uh, I think it still might be in like the hour range, though. I don't know if it goes to yeah. like seventy minutes. I remember uh, when I first listened to Eucalyptus, like I loved it, but I there was like a point where I was like, "This is too long." 
it was just like, which is weird because I, I love Animal Collective and Animal Collective related music so much that I would never picture myself being like, you know, like kind of not wishing that it would stop, but like expecting it to stop and then being weirded out by it continuing. I was just like thinking like, how fucking long is this album? And yeah, it was funny because I was, I was Lords like, does I it no it. favors. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, no, no, totally. Like, I think the start of Coral Lords is when I had that realization. I was like, oh, this is still going. I was like, oh, there's like a couple tracks left. Like, this is, this is wild. It's a good album, though. I feel like a lot of people are coming around to that now. Like, I, I, were you into that album when it came out? Absolutely. I remember the day that it leaked. I was, at that point, driving a friend uh, to his internship because he didn't have a car and I didn't have a job. So it just worked out. But it was like, I got the leak, put it on my phone, and then as I was driving the 40 minutes back home, I started putting on the album as the sun was coming up as I was driving. <laughs> so it was like the perfect, just serene, chill, like, I was totally into it. But then it did get to the point where I got all the way home, and then still had to spend the next 20 <laughs> minutes in front of my sound system finishing it. And, I mean, I think... I don't, I don't want to detract too far from the new album, but I just a piece of trivia is that I think AV said he had like two thirds of the finished album, like recorded on his little personal recorder. And then Deacon dug it up three years later. And so he wrote a few more songs that I think he wanted to add to eucalyptus. And then when it came time for them to go do meeting of the waters and the Amazon rainforest, they used a couple of, or one of those songs uh, which is better on Eucalyptus and painful on <laughs> Meeting of the Waters because it's twice as long in every conceivable fashion. And it's just like when you already know the pace of the original version, it's a slog to get through. Um, did that did did the Rio Negro version come out first, technically? Cause was, it did. You, yeah, it, it was did, like right? Record Store Day and then Eucalyptus was like two or three months later. Right. That's so funny. Yeah, also, I looked it, it up. Eucalyptus is 62 minutes and 29 oh. seconds, and the new album is 64 minutes and 12 seconds. Got So about a minute 45 difference, roughly. Damn, okay. All right. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I would say, largely in part to the, f- to the fact that Defeat's on that album, and it's 22 minutes long. Do you and think? And Magicians from Baltimore, which oh, yeah, is nine right. minutes and that's nine a and a half one. minutes. Although I think live, it's, it sometimes stretches to like 13 which again, song, that's what—that's something you would assume to be the opener, like that. Yeah. Be like that big, but of course, you know, it's hard to get people to listen to a sixty-four minute album when the first song is almost ten minutes. Almost so 10 I minutes. get it. But every song on this is is long, except for that one song that no one's heard yet. Because like yes. even Soul Capture in the single version with the with the intro cut off is almost six minutes. Which so I don't know why. It's 24 seconds of an intro. Prester John was six and a half minutes. Like, as far as your, you put out a 22 minute single right before it, you can't put an extra 24 seconds in your. I don't know. It'll just be interesting to hear that, whatever it is, instead of just the do 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 do. So, um, yeah, all yeah. the clubs are broken is the new song. I'm gonna call it a cab. Um, because those are the capitalized <laughs> letters in the title. Oh, oh my God. I don't know if that's a double meaning intentionally. Um, that's so funny, but that's just my head cannon. Also broke Zodiac is broke. Zodiac and Jim and I are the only other two songs on the album under like five minutes. 
everything is like five everything else is like five to eight minutes so it's no doubt that only nine songs added up to 64 minutes because again you have a third of the album is literally one song or and like yeah. half of it is two songs in a row that's true we we literally have with having two songs already released we have more than a third of the album already yeah with so it, i don't really song. know if they need to do another single before the 29th of next month september well, when it comes ha- out they have to do a single they have to do another one and it has to be gemini or broke zodiac because they got to get people interested in this album you need that radio hit they need, need that radio hit late it's, in the game we we're we're you know fucking like hogs in heaven right now because defeat is like what all of us have been waiting five years for and soul capturer it's like you know it's a fairly new one it's an oddball song it now it really makes sense as an intro song uh hearing it the way it was recorded it's great but I don't think anyone's going to be like, uh, like, well, this is, you know, like, this is the song that got me into Animal Collective. I feel like it's it's a it's a perfectly good song. I, I I think they they worked it really well from the the workshopped versions that we've heard over the past few years. But yeah, they, they need they need one of those bangers. They need fucking Panda Bear to bring the masses in. Yeah, I think that Soul Capture is like. It has a similar phenomenon to a lot of the songs on the album, which is that pretty much every song on it, with you know the exception of the one we haven't heard, could serve as a closer. Like Genie's Open, uh, mm. Stride Right, King's Walk, Magicians, Defeat, pretty much any of them. Even Gemini could be a closer in some fucked up timeline. Yeah. So it's like this was must have been the most impossible thing for them to sort out i mean you've got four songs on side d and that's half of the album half of the number of songs on the album but it's only like 15 minutes so it's only like a quarter it's all over the place and it's (laughs) like i remember someone asked either av or deacon in dms i don't remember when but they asked them and they were like you know asking about a status on the album they're like oh we're still kind of debating the track listing right now and i was like wow they're just like us (laughs) It's so interesting. Like, I mean, I'm sure that they did do a lot of shuffling and, you know, to see what flows into what the best. And and I, you know, like I, I think their track listing has been really good. I mean, obviously I'm a fucking super fan, so I'm biased, but their track listing has always made a lot of sense in the end. And I, I definitely trust that they know what they're doing. Um, but yeah, it, it was a track listing that really fucking surprised all the fans because it was like king's walk i think i predicted that would be the opener um that's the closer and i, I still right, kind of find king's that kind of has like do you know the beach boys smile album yes so you know our prayer right yeah it has like a very similar tone and like structure to it that you would assume oh it's this three-part melody and it's basically just them like it's like a sort of a Gregorian chant that leads into a song with a verse, but I don't think there's any hook to it. I think it's just multiple verses over mm-hmm. and over again. But again, we haven't heard the studio version, so we don't know if they touched it up or anything because we didn't really hear it live. I think they did it during their uh, quote-unquote tiny desk concert. I didn't see yeah, a fucking yeah. desk in it, but that's what they called it. <laughs> I <laughs> think, um, wasn't Abby uh, cutting cutting out stuff at a desk? That's true. 
uh, she was wearing the makeup, the face the, makeup, and the time skiff robe, and yeah, she yeah. was cosplaying for sure. For sure, yeah. I think um, also I know, for Kings... the listeners at home, that is that is a rare tooth whistle that you just heard. I don't know how to replicate <laughs> it, but like every once in a while, I want to say at least once a year, I have a McConaughey moment, and I can't make it happen. I can't predict it. It just happens. But I have to acknowledge it because I'm texting and I can't tooth whistle, uh, you know, willingly. And that's a problem anyway. But because you're texting, it's somehow inbuilt into your being. It'll right. come out every now and again. Well, one time, one day I'll have my run forest run moment and, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tooth whistle to save someone's life. Hopefully a puppy's life. So it's even cooler. <clears throat> mm. <laughs> Not editing out me clearing my throat. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is going to be fun because, like, I'm just getting over a cold, so I still have, like, a lingering cough, which I'm sure will uh, will make its way into this podcast. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to give the listeners a uh, fair warning. Yeah, you're going to hear some uh, some phlegmy coughs right. throughout this podcast. Can um, we just say it's produced by Nick Mullen from the Come Town <laughs> podcast, and that sure. just explains everything? And people will be yes. like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, this kind of grossness is all intentional. Well, regardless of whatever order the track list ended up being in, um, there's nothing that they can do to stop me from making my own on, you know, <laughs> Apple Music on a little playlist. But Unless there's they also have, nothing like, they can do to stop me from making my own mega playlist of both albums. Oh, my God. As I always envisioned them releasing. Because when they came out in 2019, there was like 15 new songs in like mm. the span of six days that they debuted. So we were like, they're, it's got to be a double album, right? And then mm-hmm. four months passed and COVID happened and all those plans went out the window. I mean, they were supposed to record Broke Zodiac and Gemini for time skips, but they just couldn't make it work, you know, across the world as opposed to all in one room. And I get that, but it's like they do kind of stick out on like, isn't it now, at least conceptually with all the more lush sort of ballad anthemic stuff that they were going for. So. It is what it is. It's a grab bag of Animal Collective at the end of the day. That's right. Do you think that uh, the the band is, like, just generally pissed off at Panda Bear? Because I feel like, you know, it's it's his fault that they couldn't really record it together. I mean, like, if they were all in the States. I mean, I think it was more just, like, general COVID restrictions. (laughs) Like, they couldn't get a studio that would allow them to all be crammed in the same tiny little room for weeks on end because of how you know, uh, uh, adverse to catching COVID everyone was when it happened. So I get it. That, that's fair. I, don't think... I, I, I think I forget sometimes like how like serious the world took COVID. Right. You know, it's like, I, I, I do often forget that there was like a pretty long period where people were just like, I can't see anybody. Like I'm going to catch this thing and die. So that's fair. Yeah, I think, and, I, and uh, plus they they're used to Panda living in Portugal for almost twenty years now, so I think they wouldn't immediately go to anger like, oh, darn it, how come you happen to live overseas where you've lived for almost our entire history of a band, <laughs> you fucker. I like to picture that they're just constantly they, none of them like each other. They all hate each other, and they especially hate Panda Bear because it was the ultimate betrayal for him to move to Portugal. Well, it all started with the Red Velvet Cupcake in 2005. Oh, my God. That tore the band apart. Tore the band apart. Actually, 
it, non-jokingly, I, I do remember there being a Holindigan or a Here Comes the Indian later renamed Ark tour where they made it like three shows in a van, but then they broke down and geologists and Deacon just went back home <laughs> to, I don't know what, I, I think uh, geologist was in grad school at the time. So it's not like they haven't had their bumps, but they seem to be running pretty smoothly these days and they're probably, you know, Jones in to get up on a stage as much as we want to see them up on a stage. So absolutely. That being I, said, AV is on a solo tour in the month yeah. of September and he's playing in my city <coughs> the day the album comes out. Him and geologist is his opening act. So half the band will be in my backyard essentially <laughs> when this album comes out. So fingers crossed something comes of that in in the form of some sort of interview uh you know fingers crossed knock on wood if it doesn't oh well we're just putting that out there and if it doesn't happen we'll let you know obviously do you think they're gonna do anything special i mean like it's coming out on a day that they're both like half of the band is there and didn't it right. wasn't there something on uh av's instagram recently about um him and geo jamming together on this tour yes and my first thought would be oh that means they're going to do man of oil like they did on the eucalyptus right. the short-lived eucalyptus tour where he had to cancel more than half the dates they had planned i'm rolling my eyes because i was supposed to go to the one in atlanta but i got a stupid refund instead Ugh. i'm like i don't want my 18 dollars. i want to see av tear i want av tear not money but yeah i'm either man of oil or something else that they can just do with the two of them in the octa track you know soul capturer well you don't have panda on drums and backup vocals so it's, you gotta well, think they, about uh, it pragmatically yeah. they got well i mean like they got uh when they played soul capture live they were just using like a, a drum track right and then um i don't know throw throw a couple pre-recorded uh when they did the like record well Actually, yes, you're right because they did have a drum machine going because Panda was on guitar. He was on guitar, yeah. You're right. I you you outsmarted me, Jordan. This is why you're the <laughs> legend, and I'm but a worthless peon. All right, well, but we you're can right talk about, about you're right about the, the game vocals, we should, but yeah. we should move on. Yeah, yeah, we should actually uh, focus on the the meat and we're potatoes. Half an hour in, we haven't talked about Ween at all. <laughs> well, we did, but you know what though? Uh, there's there's there is a good segue with this though because we were we're talking about track listing, right? And like uh, the proper flow of the animal, the new animal collective album and like the speculations and what song would flow best into the next. Oh my God. How, like, how did they make the mollusk flow from one track to the next? It is there. I believe, I believe Greg, that there are three EPs in this album. I think there's three, three groupings of songs that could make three EPs. And they, those three different sets all sound like you could, they all match like right together they don't but for some reason it still works what the fuck because it's ween that's how that's always <laughs> been their style from the beginning although their first album was mostly punk music with like a few outliers and then it sort of just gradually became like a mixed bag and then you get to the last album and it's just like everything is so wildly different from one track to the next that it's just like tonal whiplash every single time but not in the good way <laughs> Um, but yes, we're talking about Ween's album, The Mollusk, which is the album that introduced me to them as a band. 
and one of my all-time favorite records. I think a lot of people hold it in high esteem as one of the greatest, um, if not Ween albums, greatest of all time albums, because it is just so, it do, like you were saying, it does flow just so perfectly, and all the, it's like the sum of all parts works uh, to make this, like, dare I say magnum opus, considering that, you know, they only made three more albums after it, and it's been radio silence, aside from live shows since then. Um, but yeah, it's been, uh, last year was 25 years since this album came out and it still sounds immaculate. It sounds like they recorded it, you know, five years ago. The production is top tier. Yes. Shout out to Andrew Weiss of the Henry Rollins group. And I, I think he was there. So he was Ween's bassist, I think literally up until this album. Uh, I think they had some sort of like falling out. No pun intended. That's a name of a Ween song on White Pepper. Um, But he still put their differences aside and did a fantastic job producing this album because every song just sounds so like... There is just like sort of a a watery feel to like half of the album, especially the title track, The Mollusk, which has that sort of like... That that modular uh, mm-hmm. synth that they were using, um, yeah, it kind of sounds like a flute. Which yeah, is and so interesting because there's a lot of flute in SpongeBob. That's true, and we should point out that this is the <laughs> album that inspired SpongeBob SquarePants and inspired Steven Hillenburg aesthetically to create SpongeBob. Um, I guess there there is that sort of like underlying sense of humor to all of Ween's music that made its way into Spongebob. Like, when you tell me that it inspired Spongebob, it's like, oh, that 100% makes complete sense. Mm, Because it's like, uh, you look at the album cover, which I want to point out was done by a man named Storm Thorgerson. I hope I said that right. uh, For free. They sent him the demo of the album, and he said, you don't have to pay me a dime. This is incredible. I will make all of your art completely for free. And he's the same guy that did the Dark Side of the Moon album art for Pink Floyd, so one of the most famous album arts of all time. Um, And he was just a total bro, and he made this incredible, (laughs) fucked up, weird thing on the cover. Like, a mollusk can be many different things, but it's almost like he just took, like, ten of them and then shoved them into one creature. And I don't even know how you can describe it. But the second you look at it, you're like, hey, this looks like a prop from the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. (laughs) And, of course, Maybe. speaking of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, we should yeah. both acknowledge that this is where we both first heard Ween. <laughs> Which I didn't know about. People. I didn't know about that until just, like, earlier this week when I uh, listened to this album for the first time. Because I, I was talking to you uh, a little while back, right, about Ween, and uh, I, I was like, yeah, I'm not really familiar with their music. And I, all I was familiar with was, like, their logo. There was a, there's a name for the logo, right? Boognish. Yes. Okay. All hail Boogniche. <laughs> so I was I was familiar with uh, Boogniche, but I wasn't, uh, or or I didn't think at least I was familiar with their music. And then here I am listening to the Mollusk, and I'm like, all right, yeah, this is pretty sick. Like I, I can fucking yeah, I can vibe with this. And then, well, it's you funny know because funny I that- only ever had Ocean Man saved <laughs> on the SpongeBob soundtrack, like the movie soundtrack, for years before oh, yeah. I ever listened to the Mollusk. So I didn't have that like correlation until <laughs> I think it became a meme in like 2016, 17, and I saved it 
from the mollusk and never checked it out until like three or four years later. That's so funny. Like, um, there are songs like where I was thinking like, like the, maybe even the mollusk itself, like some of the, or some of like the vocal stylings. I was just like, man, where have I heard this before? And then like, it all made sense when I heard ocean man. I was like, Oh, right. Of course. I was like, this is that fucking song from SpongeBob. There's a lot of vocal pitch shifting on this album. Like not in like the vampire weekend way where it's super obvious, although maybe a little bit. And, and that very first song I'm dancing in the show tonight, mm-hmm. um, because like, I think they did like some sort of modulator for that, but Ween's style has always been like, let's change, like write the song in a certain key and then transpose it to whatever will make the perfect vocal sound for it. So, like, I think Push the Little Daisies was written, like, half an octave below, and so that's why he sounds like Spongebob or Cartman <laughs> when he's singing that song, because they just... I think they even did that on, like, a four-track, so they just had that built in. Um, but as they got, you know, signed to a label and actual studio budgets and stuff, that was when they started just implementing it, like, in a f- sort of freeform fashion. And it is worth pointing out that The Mollusk is, like, the first album they recorded as a band, like, they had a live band, but up until mm-hmm. then, it was, like, only a few songs had a live drummer. It was almost always just Gene and Dean in a drum machine. I did not mean for that last part to rhyme. It just happened to. That's beautiful. That was beautiful. Um, but it's true. Like, they – and there's certain talk show performances where it is just them and a drum machine. But the Mollusk was the first one where they had um, – you know, the two of them on guitar. Then they had their keyboardist, Glenn McClelland, who is a legend. Uh, I'm going to call them all legends. Dave Drywitz, the Druitz, Drywitz. I hope I, I should have looked that up beforehand uh, as the bassist, uh, replacing Andrew Weiss. And then they have Claude Coleman Jr. on drums, who is fantastic in his own right. They're all great musicians. And so they, it's kind of like a super band, like, uh, oh, um, What's the one with George Harrison and Roy Orbison and Tom Petty and Bob uh, the Dylan? Traveling Wilburys? Traveling, yeah, it's like that, but it's yes. just Ween <laughs> or like Radiohead, <laughs> where like they're all they could all be like they could all write their own album that's super complex and stuff, but they're all just sort of there for Tom's vision. It's like the other three are just there for Gene and Dean's ideas and to serve whatever the genre or tone of the song that they're going for is. So it really comes across in like the production with like, especially the keyboard solo in the song, the mollusk and just Mm. other little things that you probably wouldn't be able to get away with on this album with just two people. Of course that didn't stop them from using drum machines on stuff like uh, track four. I'll be your Johnny on the spot or uh, track. What is that? 12, uh, 11 waving my dick in the wind. Mm. Yeah. So catchy title. Yes, of course it is. Um, which now that we're on the topic of that song, let's go ahead and point out that the two I just named, I believe are leftovers from their previous album, 12 golden country greats, which was actually written around the same time as the mollusk. Like anytime they weren't working on a pirate themed song or whatever, they would work on a country song. And then, Mm. so the way that this album was recorded was they had like a weekend in this beach house in New Jersey and they wrote uh it was like all stormy and it was just like the perfect setting so they wrote out their version of um 
uh, old folk song called The Unquiet Grave, but their version is called Cold Blows the Wind. And they use that setting as, like, a perfect way to, like, get the mood across of that song. And I think they recorded a few others. Maybe the title track and maybe even Ocean Man came out of that weekend. And then something happened where the pipes broke and the whole place flooded and they almost lost everything. And they were like, fuck it. Let's go to Nashville and make a country album and we'll get back to this. (laughs) So. There's a lot uh... of lore to this album, man. Yeah, this. I mean, this album is. Um, it's interesting because uh, I'm curious to he- to hear more about like how you actually discovered it. I mean, was it was it uh, SpongeBob? Like you you heard Ocean Man, you were like the song slaps, and then you checked out Ween or right. And I think it was it was just Ocean Man was all I knew for years, and then you know all these people in the Animal Collective Discord were talking about Ween, and I was like, okay, fuck it. Where do I start with Ween? All I know is Ocean Man. They're like, just do that album and you'll be sold. And I was like, okay. And within like, by the time the first track, the first two tracks were over, I was like, okay, yes, I am sold. This is excellent. I am so glad I checked this out. And I'm also angry that I didn't check it out earlier. Cause this is like, this is one of those albums where it's like, holy shit. How have I never heard this? This is like one of the most perfect albums ever recorded. This is like Sergeant Pepper level. Good. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, um, it is really good. And, and obviously like a lot of people feel that way too. Um, you know, endless comparisons with Animal Collective always, but I mean, you know, like this, we were this about, equivalent, like the mollusk is the equivalent of Meriwether Post. Yeah, I was just about to say that. For the like, I, I think, I think, did it score higher? I I know the mollusk was like a 9.7, I believe on Pitchfork, right? Oh, I don't give a shit. <laughs> I know other people do. I stopped giving a shit a long time ago. You, you don't but listen to music right. just based on what Pitchfork recommends? What? Well, that's also a good question because I don't know if Pitchfork even existed when the Mollus came out. Maybe sure it, did. it was. Like, maybe it was just that email list. Yeah, like, I think it was that weird, shitty, uh, like GeoCities like, style where they did the review for um, I, even Panda Bear's first yeah, album yeah. might have been covered by them on there. Or it, it was, uh, yeah, Spirit for sure it was. Yeah. yeah, I think it. I think it. If it wasn't like back in the in the the primitive pitchfork days, then it was probably something that they retroactively reviewed, for sure. And but, I mean, yeah. if they did give it a nine point seven, um, I think that's actually an error because it should be a ten out of ten. But of course, <laughs> we can't just give out ten out of tens any time of the week because then it has to make some list and it's etched in stone forever. So you know, sorry, I, Kanye. And I think Pitchfork have also retroactively changed some of their ratings, right? Yes, but I think Pull Hair Rub Eye is still fucked <laughs> with its measly 1.1 or whatever. Well, to be fair, it does deserve that. It's unlistenable. I mean, some of the songs backwards are all right, but... It, when they're they sped up not... and backwards? No, 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 no. My Can't God, they it. could not have done those songs more dirty than what they did with that. Those are some of the most beautiful songs ever made, ever well, you know what's interesting is that he was like, oh, we had probably just seen that new Lynch movie, Inland Empire, and I think that was what inspired us to reverse it. God right? And like a, it, a number of other Lynch. things. But it's like, I watched Inland Empire recently. There's like no reversed footage in it. So I have no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Maybe, I don't know. Was, he was watching anyway. the backwards version for some reason, and then... <laughs> right. like, oh. Speaking of reversed things, kind of trying to get back to the mollusk um, right there's you could literally talk about every single song on this album as a highlight b 
because they are also good. Like even the ones like Johnny on the spot or um, pink guy on my leg, which is an instrumental you might consider throwaways. But again, like I said, they all work together to make this cohesive. Like, I'm not saying that the album wouldn't work without them, but you would feel a little something missing without them. There's, there's something like about the contrast, I think between songs that really like lends to the power of each song. You know, yeah. it's like, so I, I kind of made some notes here um, on, on what I was talking about earlier with like that grouping of songs. So like, I feel like, okay, so you got like Johnny on the spot, waving my dick and like pink eye. And those three mm-hmm. songs, like those could be their own like little EP or something. That could be like, I would a seven. even nominate golden eel for that grouping. Sure. Yeah. Th- those, that could be like a seven inch sort of like punk rock kind of adjacent record or something like that. Those songs fit well together. But then you look at, like, the mollusk, mutilated lips, it's going to be all right, cold blows the wind. Like, those songs are more of, like, a straightforward, like, indie at the time, you know, indie rock, I guess you could say, kind of flow. And those songs, I think if you group them together, you'd have a nice little indie EP. But I feel like if you look at either one of those two EPs, if they theoretically, if those existed in in that form... I think that they might actually be a little boring. And I think it's because of the mixture of those two completely different styles, um, like literally like changing up song by song. I think it like actually breathes light into each song because of the contrast. For sure. Well, I think yeah. a big part of it is that um, time signatures, I think, play a key part in keeping not just the flow of the album going, but also like the styles uh, consistent because like tracks one, two, three, six, uh, s- uh, 12 and 14 all are in either three, four or six, eight, which is like the waltz time mm-hmm. signature. So like do cha cha do cha cha. Yeah. And especially for stuff like the Blarney stone, which is just a straight up <laughs> bar song, sea shanty, like, mm-hmm you know, drinking ale on the pirate ship kind of song. You need that sort of, like, subliminally, even if it's not about, uh, you know, something aquatic or what have you, I think subliminally it, it keeps that concept sort of going. Because you can call the Mollusk a concept album, but be like you're saying, because the style shifts so rapidly sometimes between songs, it might not necessarily feel like that in the moment. But... Mm. It is just sort of like wrapped up in this perfect little bow. So maybe we should just go track by track and um, talk about it instead of just jumping around because I think that's kind of crucial to understanding the album is how it goes song by song. And we'll play samples as we talk about each one to sort of highlight that. So let's start with the opener. It's called I'm Dancing in the Show Tonight. If it's the first thing you hear on the album and you're not expecting it, you're going to be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but because I knew Ween was sort of a weird band, I was like, okay, I'm on board. We'll see where this goes. <laughs> um, 
worth pointing out that it is not a Ween song originally. Uh, it's technically a cover slash rewrite slash rework slash interpretation of uh, interpolation rather. Uh, there's a song called Are My Ears On Straight by the artist Gayla Peavy, who people might remember from the song I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, which either you love or you hate if you're a Christmas music fan. But or a it gets played fan. every year on the radio. Um, the, you know, it, like that song, that opening track was so weird for me, Greg, I got to say, because like, you know, I didn't really know anything about ween i didn't even know that i'd already heard them with ocean man and you recommend this album to me and and i i put it on this is the first song that i hear and i'm like what the fuck right but it's amazing because like while that song i think serves primarily as just a kind of like get ready like you know you're in for a ride where you're not gonna know what to expect because like this is such a fucking weird song I think it's a perfect, like, you know, precursor to what happens, but it, it really made sense uh, when when I was done listening to the album, and, and then, you know, you told me that Steven Hillenberg was uh, inspired by the album to make Spongebob, because I was like, okay, yeah, that first song is like the opening to a kid's show. Like, it feels like an opening to a kid's show, and those pitch-shifted yeah. voices sound like fucking weird tripped out like you know kids song i can imagine like danny perez listening to that shit and just like creaming his jeans it's um it's it's kind it's kind of twisted it's kind of twisted i i I like it it's it's weird though it's so weird it's like it's such a well it's like first of all the original song was from the perspective of a doll hoping to get bought for christmas by like a little girl in the supermarket uh and so they changed it to basically just like someone dancing in a you know ballet or what have you show so that's You've already got that. You've got the lyrics that go from like SpongeBob range down to Patrick range <laughs> uh, within like a, s- a few seconds of each other. Uh, and then you've also got uh, actual vocals by little kids, which uh, I think it's just one kid. It's the uh, son of the drummer, Claude Coleman. So Claude Coleman Jr. Jr. He probably has a different <laughs> name. I'm not going to look into it, even though he's probably roughly my age. But he's a 50 year old man now. Yes, just like his dad. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it is a very interesting track. But yeah, it, it does sort of set this like whimsical sort of tone for the album. Um, and it, it has, yeah, it, and like the, the solo of the song that has, I don't know if it's actual strings or uh, synthetic strings or whatever, but it does have that sort of like, it, it makes you think of like a scene in SpongeBob where they're hunting for jellyfish in a field with their little mm-hmm. nets. Yeah. Um, and we should not go any further talking about this album and SpongeBob without mentioning the song Loop De Loop, which was written by the request of Steven Hillenberg for SpongeBob. Like he requested Ween write the song before the show had even aired ever. And that's why it's so early in the series because they didn't know what it was. But they were like, okay, it's a song about learning how to tie your shoes. This is, you know, we can write this in an afternoon. And I think they did. And. So that was also I pro- that was actually probably the first Ween song I ever heard was Loop De Loop <laughs> in an episode of SpongeBob and then years later the not too many years but a few years later the movie with Ocean Man. So, yeah, I can definitely I I we're we're in agreement with how we completely understand how the influ the trail of influence uh trickled down into it makes pop sense. culture. 
So what we're saying is that Ween is the reason Nickelodeon is still in business. I think yeah. that's fair to say. I mean, Nickelodeon owes Ween a lot of money. Maybe they are paying Ween off. Maybe that's why Ween hasn't made an album in a very long time. Right. Well, that and, you know, drug abuse and breakups and reunions and whatever. But they still kick ass live. I'm not going to harp on it. Wait a minute. You're telling me the guys that made the mollusk do drugs? Oh, yes, I do. In <laughs> fact, it was described by uh, Dean Ween as, quote unquote, our dark acid album, which after <laughs> listening to stuff like, uh, um, like, it's going to be all right. Cold blows the wind, the golden eel, which I think was it. Golden eel was literally written on acid. Uh it, it sounds like makes a hundred percent sense that you're like, okay, yeah. Especially with like some of the little details Andrew Weiss adds into the mix. Like I believe cold blows the wind ends with like this little, like, like this little low pitched, uh, synth, like in the background that just adds so much detail. Oh, I think it's pink eye or polka dot tail. The problem is they use it more than once. So I'm having trouble nailing it down. <laughs> But it it's like there's just so much detail littered into this that it's one of those headphones albums. Or mm-hmm. like if you've only heard it on speakers and then you put on headphones, it's like a world of difference. Again, like Animal Collective, you know, this is you can endlessly compare this to that. I think this is like mm-hmm. if Animal Collective attempted to write a Ween album, they would have produced something very similar to this. Yeah, for sure. Like wasn't there even um, uh, in that... Uh danny perez movie uh, anti-birth there was like a kids like a oh, chuck yes. e cheese sort of welcome uh, to the fun zone that was it right song. yeah yeah i don't remember what there was um first of all we should give a shout out to aaron uh aka ween remastered on youtube and discord who does a perfect job uh remastering all these old demos and tapes and what have you and rarities um basically using modern technology to enhance these you know lo-fi recordings uh, they were doing some stream on the Ween server the other day, and I was tuned in, and they played... I don't remember what... They didn't even tell me the name of it, but they played me this one song, and it was like Welcome to the Fun Zone, like this weird, demonic, fucked-up children's song. They only played like 20 seconds of it, and they're like, that's all you get. That's my hidden gem. And I was like, that sounds 100% like it would be in a Danny Perez movie. So <laughs> There you uh, go. So track two is The Mollusk. We've talked about it. Uh, it's the title track. It's amazing. their fifth most performed song to date uh, of all time since 1996 or seven when they debuted it. And they've had over a thousand concerts in their career. So I think they've played it like almost 600 times or something like that. Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful I mean, song. I can't blame it. It's a good them. song. It's a, it's yeah. a great song. It's, it's a really but, like, I mean, it feels like the real intro to the album, right? Like it's yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
I feel like the 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 first song is to weed out the the people that are easily going to be offended by weirdness, and then then they jump into the real first song, which is the mollusk. Right, the mollusk. The song serves as like the opus for the album, and it's like, what else would you call it? You know, I think they even had the album title before they called the song that and wrote the lyrics. So, um, but I should point out that. This is one of my favorites on it because it has probably the greatest keyboard solo ever recorded. I think, in my opinion... Uh, I mean, there's two of them, but I am referring to the second one that is like the ending of the song, basically. It was, um, uh, people listening might not know this. That song at the beginning is called Harry Anderson. It's by Jordan and I's band, Lunar Panel. And Mm -hmm. the keyboard solo in the middle of it, which we don't play, but if you go on Spotify and Apple Music and listen to it, you'll hear it, uh, was inspired by the keyboard solo from The Mollusk, even though I think they were playing that, like, like recording it live and then maybe sped it up. Um, I was just programming it with a, a keyboard and mouse. So not as much talent, but still going for the same sort of thing where you start low and then crescendo and the higher octaves. And I don't know. I just, I, this album in particular, I've picked up a number of production techniques from just by listening to it. And I think that's one of the best things you can accomplish as a musician is achieving something and then inspiring others to not, rip it off per se but use the techniques you did to make some other sort of music and you know keep the spirit of it alive and i think like because this album is so rich in different like sonic palettes and textures like you know the the sort like inspiration is is just like almost endless because you can listen to any song and be like oh like like, you you could listen like johnny on the spot and be like oh now i'm inspired to make like this kind of like weird like like punky sort of like sleaze song you know right i yeah i think there's just the the range with with ween it's like it's like there's sort of like a middle point where it's like the influences flow through them and then out through their music to other people like they're Mm -hmm. inspired by other musicians and there are even some songs where they've admitted like yeah this is this song but we slightly rewrote it and then made it our own little song, um, but we'll fully acknowledge that that's where it got where it came from, you know. <laughs> right. So track three, okay. polka yes. dot tail. Did you ever see a whale with a polka dot tail? Did you ever see a man with eight fingers on his hand? Did you have to dry your eye when you saw that? Probably like the first like like when you first become aware that it is like there are gonna be waltz songs on this album because it is like the beat of it is almost exactly just do cha cha do cha cha but it totally works because it's all about the guitars on this song and like the weird noisy cacophony of synths that they uh, use whenever they reach the end of a verse and it goes into the solo it's just it's this 
uh, huge mending of styles that, you know, it, it all coalesces into this sort of like, like I said, cacophony of noise. And, you know, I think it, like the lyrics of it are like pretty straightforward and keep uh, going along with the theme of the album, which is like, you know, the sea and pirates and stuff. It's talking about, have you ever, it's kind of like uh, come together by the mm. Beatles where like the lyrics seem nonsensical where it's like, have you ever seen a whale with a polka dot tail? Have you ever seen a man with eight fingers on his hand? Have you ever uh, dried your eye when you saw a puppy fly? So it's like, well, no, none of those things, but <laughs> it all works together somehow. I really uh, want to give special shout outs to the lyrics. Have you ever tried to shrink like an ice cube in the sink? And have you ever made a flan and squished it in your hand? Mm. Because it's just so like visually descriptive that I, I can immediately imagine what they're trying to describe. So it may For be sure, a silly yeah. little song, but it's got some of the best like imagery on the album, I think. That uh, like shrinking like the the ice cube in the sink definitely like that stood out for me. I was like, oh yeah, I could picture that. You're like, oh, it's that kind of vibe we're going for. I get yeah. you. I get you. I got you. So track four is we talked about it. I'll be your Johnny on the spot. quick snappy little thing but when of course in typical ween style whenever they play it live like polka dot tail when they get to the solo they completely jam out and a song that was like two minutes on the album can end up being like nine <laughs> just because dean ween is a guitar legend and he will just sit there and shred non-stop uh and the rest of the band will just keep it going and it always you know, even if he hits the wrong notes, somehow it all ties in together. Like, it's like when you're on stage and someone forgets a line, but then the other actor sort of just like, you know, does it in their own way to keep the flow of the scene going without an awkward pause. It's sort of like that. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I just advise anyone who's listening to this, if you haven't heard The Mollusk, A, listen to it. Of course, that's... Every rec- every album we talk about, we're going to give that recommendation. But also, listen to the Live in Chicago Ween uh, DVD slash CD recording, because it's got some of the best live versions of... I think it's, like, every song they perform on it is, like, considered the, like, ideal version of it being played live. So, everyone go check that out. It's a fantastic concert. Uh, there are some songs in it that are performed that are way better than the recorded versions so um you know if there's something on this that doesn't tickle your fancy maybe it will there but i actually think this has like that like we're talking about meriwether post pavilion thing where it's Mm -hmm. like sometimes when they perform it live it doesn't have the same uh like there's just something about the sound that you're so accustomed to on the album like with the production that when it's Mm -hmm. translated to live it feels a little lacking but the album doesn't go anywhere. It's still there. You can still go and listen to your preferred version. It just, you know, depends on what you're in the mood for. Is, is Ween 
at all like Animal Collective in the sense that like they change up their like instrumentation because I feel like that's what hurts Animal Collective when they try and recreate like like you know we were talking about like the the drop it drop the the fucking drop in in the flowers right right and then that that bass is just completely gone it's just gone and the but it's version. like is that is that due to circumstance is that due to the fact that they changed up their instruments from what they I were? think with Ween they almost always wrote their songs like I was saying earlier how they mm-hmm. recorded on a four track they would mm-hmm. just try to perform the the song in its entirety without having to do any overdubs. Uh, right. For the most part, so it wasn't until they got to stuff like chocolate and cheese when they actually had like a primitive version of a a DAW digital audio workstation that they could use and do stuff that they couldn't just in one take. Like there's a song "Candy" on that album, "Chocolate and Cheese." They didn't play it live till 2019, and it went so poorly they never did it again because it was so like it's so hard to replicate <laughs> all the little sounds and dingings and drum machine things live that they're like, "Fuck it, it's not worth it." <laughs> We tried. There's a reason we didn't do it now until now, and there's a reason we won't going forward. <laughs> so I think it depends on the song. But for the most part, right. like I said, I think they, you know, when you have that sort of like guitars, bass, drums, keyboard setup, mm-hmm. um, both in the studio and on stage, there's really not that much you got to change up. Yeah. I think maybe they, like the, the thing in the mollusk, the song where it goes, I think that's just like a loop. Mm. Or, or like someone just taps a pad on a sampler and it does that. I don't think they actually replicate it live. Um, but perhaps they do because like it changes a key that sample live that it doesn't on the studio version. So again, it's mm. a, it, a toss up in the moment. Yes to some, no to others. It is what it right. is. Right. Oh, that's cool. Um, so track five, Mutilated Lips. Oh, Mutilated Lips. tell you greg that this was my favorite track this was my favorite track on the album well kurt vile agrees with you kurt vile yeah what is he he based his entire career off of that song or something (laughs) no i I think uh he just said that it was his favorite song of all time like when he was listening to it uh probably he's not even that old so he must have been like pretty young when he heard it and i think it just inspired him to i haven't heard the war on drugs so it's possible that this the they share a similarity in the production or sounds but um i, mean, I like think kurt, kurt vile's solo music is kind of in the same vein as that song i mean like that I, that's the mutilated lips is like a pixie song right like it, it kind of feels like a like are you familiar with the pixies music i know the fight club song okay so, <laughs> so not really yeah that's not the best like i don't know that's not the best descriptor of like what they are capable of doing, but like Frank Black is uh he's got a lot of these like very almost like like the vocals are almost like strained, but almost like whispery, you know, like kinda mm-hmm. like how they are in mutilated lips and, and it's uh it was interesting because when I was listening to it, there there's um lyrically a lot of like similarities with the Pixies too, like 
there's a fam- famous song by the Pixies called Wave of Mutilation. And, you know, just, I don't know, lyrically, I just kind of felt like, okay, like, this is interesting. I wonder if, if they were somewhat inspired. I mean, everyone, to some degree, is inspired by the Pixies, whether they know it or not. But, um, right. Not me. That was but defi- anyway. <laughs> definitely a com- comparison that, that came to mind while I was listening to it. But thoroughly love that song. That was, that's, that's my kind of shit. I enjoy it because it's one of their most psychedelic. And it's also... I think the first rap that ever appears on a Ween song. Mutilated lips give a kiss on the wrist of the worm like tips of tentacles expanding in my mind. I'm fine accepting only fresh brine. You can get another drop of this. Yeah, you wish. Uh, But it doesn't seem like a rap at first because it just, it flows so naturally with like the rhythm of the song that, it's almost like you, you're going along with it and you recite the whole thing. And then it is until someone points out that it is a rap that you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Because they're just speaking rhythmically to a meter. Right. But there's not like, you know, the obvious instrumentation behind it. There's like bongos and you've got the on the vocals. We talked about this when we were talking about Defeat last episode, how it's got that um, that pre-reverb effect where it's yeah. like. Yeah, yeah the backwards it, the, uh, reverb, yeah. Where you take you, you record your thing and then you reverse your dry take, you add the reverb on top, and then you reverse that so that when you play it forward, the reverb like fades in instead of fading out as it normally mm-hmm. would. That's the best way I can verbally describe it without doing some sort of onomatopoeia thing. But uh, it's very it's very ghostly. Yes, it, it's it definitely evokes a sort of set uh, sense of unease, and the imagery mm-hmm. and the lyrics definitely does too. Uh, I want to point out the lyric in the song, everything is turning brown, which is a mm-hmm. ween thing. They call, like, brown is, like, their equivalent of, like, dope or awesome. Like, especially when Dean is on stage and he's just, like, going completely ham on the guitar and it's, like, something you've never heard of before or, like, you just, like, sort of snap into it in the moment. You're like, oh, this is the song I'm listening to. That's brown. Like, when the when the noise is just so, like when it just puts you in this state that other music can't it's brown it's again it's hard to describe but it's like in the moment you know it like you feel it you know it when you hear it if that makes sense the brown note yeah uh there actually might be a song or two on one of their other albums that has a literal brown note but oh yeah you shake your pants while you're listening to it yeah Check out Morning Glory and make sure you crank it all the way up. It's like Untitled by Animal Collective. You want to hear every ear-piercing frequency. And if it does have a brown note in it, then you want to play it really loud so that like your neighbors also shit their pants and just anyone right. that's in earshot. Or you can take it to the military and say, this is how you defeat ISIS or whoever right. we're fighting still at this point. Yeah, exactly. It's so, good. track six, The Blarney Stone. <laughs> After the Rock in Ireland, 
I don't think right. it has any other uh, connection to it. But I think that's just they like that name, and it evokes some sort of like aesthetic that they were going for in this song. It is a pirate song. It is a hundred percent a pirate. Uh, I think it's Dean because uh, normally Gene Ween, Aaron Freeman, uh, normally sings pretty much every Ween song, whether he's in his normal voice or pitched up or down. But occasionally Dean will sing one, especially if he can do like a low sort of graspy voice. Mm-hmm. And so this one he's doing like an Irish pirate accent. And it is exactly like something you would hear in a pub. Like we talked about earlier, it's mm-hmm. it's so it sounds so authentic. And it's strange to think it was just recorded by like a group of hippies in 90s New Jersey. <laughs> it feels like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean, the movies, which didn't exist when this was recorded. So that just makes it even more impressive that they were just going off of like, you know, uh, fantasy, not fantasy island. What am I thinking of? There's like a famous pirate movie with the word island in the title. Cutthroat Is it Treasure Island? island? D- d- well, there's the Muppet Treasure Island, but that's probably well, based on Treasure Island. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of Treasure Planet, which is a whole different thing. There was a uh, Cutthroat Island was a movie that came out. That's probably that may be 90s. what I'm thinking of. There's also Waterworld. Who knows Water if they World. were inspired by that? But um, I mean, who 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 isn't inspired by Waterworld? I was inspired to never spend two hundred million dollars <laughs> making a uh, movie about pirates. So <laughs> I was inspired to never watch a movie again <laughs> after I watched Waterworld. I actually still have. I need to see it because I feel like. If we didn't watch Captain Ron for this episode, that would have been the one I went to. Um, yeah, that would have been a good but choice. It was your too. choice, so I probably would have had more to more to talk about with Waterworld. To be that's honest, that's true. But. This might actually be one of our shorter episodes, just because Captain <laughs> Ron really doesn't get interesting until the last, uh, you know, thirty minutes. But we'll get to that. For well, now, we're I talking, think we already did. That's that. That was our discussion. That's the Captain. whole review. Yeah. <laughs> well, we just broke formula, so we got to end the podcast forever. There's no more episodes. This yep. is it. Ends right here right here actually i have one more thing to mention about this blarney stone song and then maybe the other eight tracks on the album (laughs) uh so the in the song you can hear there's like bottles clinking and guys cheering and it sounds Mm -hmm. like i don't know if you've ever seen les miserables on stage or maybe even the movie that the the song when they go to that like brothel and uh, the Tenardier's Master of the House is the song. And that, that's like when my high school did it, that was like the background of it was, you know, you had people pretending to drink and mm-hmm. going like and cheering and doing the, you know, drunken pub guy thing. That was yeah. just like they got a group of like 10 people together in the studio, had a party where everyone was, you know, pouring back beers and hanging out and just having a good time. And they just recorded a lot of that and mixed it into the song. And I think they had them all, like, do the, the chorus, you know. I, I, I. They did, like, a few passes of that and then layered them. And just, it, it all just works. Mm, it's perfect. It's like, it's so good, it almost makes me frustrated. Because it's like, it's like when you watch the Lord of the Rings movies. It's like, will I ever be capable of anything close to making <laughs> something this good in my life? Will anyone? I, I felt the same thing, uh, but not so much about making, like, maybe that song, but more just, right. like, will I ever be as drunk as the people that are in the background? That like, just sounds like such a good party. I think this and She Wanted to Leave are, like, the two most obvious. Uh, she Wanted to Leave being the closer. 
like the most obvious sort of like sea shanty slash uh, nautical themed songs because one is about you know being a pirate and you know focusing on that rather than otherworldly pleasures like women or you know not living mm. on a stinky rotten boat and then she wanted to leave is about like uh it's almost like the plot of one of the pirates of the caribbean movies of like i have been in love with this woman since we were young but now she has another love and she's leaving me and there's really nothing i can do about it other than just let her go and sail off into the horizon so there are little melancholic uh bits to this album which i guess is a great transition to the next song track Mm. seven it's gonna be in parentheses all right don't know why it's in parentheses but it is fantastic song probably my favorite or at least the best produced because it's just such a perfectly executed straightforward like breakup song um Mm -hmm. now of course it's not on par with their album two albums later quebec which is like a divorce album which is very serious and dark this is like when him and his wife were still in their on and off again phase uh gene him and his wife so i think this was like it's like a love song written from the perspective of the guy dumping someone. So it's an interesting concept, but if you don't listen to the lyrics, it just sounds like, you know, a nice, relaxing, serene little thing. And, you know, if you're going to write a song called It's Gonna Be Alright or Everything Will Be Alright, it better be a really good song because that is such a very vague and generic sentiment that, like, you need to reinforce that with whatever emotion you're trying to convey through the production and the arrangement and the melodies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think this does that perfectly. It's got like that little do we, 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 after the lyrics. And you've got like, ah, in the background. And when you just layer them all together, it all just makes this like beautifully lush, uh, just gorgeous fucking song. And it's like in the almost exact middle of the album. And so it, it's like, it's almost as like, that's where the tone sort of, uh gets to its happiest i would say Mm -hmm. because then it sort of like goes over a cliff for the next few songs like into the really like depressed sort of stuff of course waving my dick in the wind is you know sort of a happy little intermission from all that pink eye on my leg is is just crushing (laughs) yeah oh yeah it it, (laughs) we'll get to that originally it would have maybe been and that's why it ended up in the state it is but um, it's gonna be all right. Is just like I would play that if I was going to make love to a woman, or if I was gonna try to get normies into Ween and didn't want to. Even if the song "The Mollusk" was too weird for them, this is where mm-hmm. I would start them with, or like some of the more low key stuff on Quebec. But it's also like you know, like we talked about that opening song is just so like it just gets right to the point that it's like, mm-hmm. if you're going to introduce something, someone to something as eclectic as ween, that might be the one that, that might want, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
this that is all might live, be guys. the path you want to take to do that. But because there is so much variety, like Animal Collective, mm-hmm. you can really just pick a number of avenues in, and as long as you, you know, pick the right song for your audience, there's a good chance you'll get someone into the band just based on whatever you show them. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to pick a karaoke song, maybe not this one, but if I was trying to serenade a woman, perhaps. So we'll see. But <laughs> it's a great song. That's all I can say. You heard it here. Serenade women. And it's going to be in brackets. Serenade right. women with a breakup song that sounds like a love song. There you go. That's how you do it. Um, okay, the Golden track Eel. Eight. Track eight, The Golden Eel. Sitting alone in the den, watching the eel. Help me find my way home. One of the few songs they ever performed on Comedy Central. You have to look up that clip afterwards. I think it's on. Uh, yeah, I did not know Carson that. Daly before he had the like oh, no. network talk show. Carson, really? Yeah, this is, this is, this is pre like TRL. Hmm. Do you know what TRL is? <laughs> Total Request Live. Of course, I yeah, know what it is. Okay, it was okay. a plot point in the Drake and Josh movie. <laughs> Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> how i know these things <laughs> also they did an album uh we did a uh, live album live on the infranet as they said uh mm. called all requests live and for a moment yeah. i thought that it was related to trl but then no it's just maybe that was like they were alluding to it anyway the golden eel let me just go ahead and point out that i often will confuse this with buckingham green when they first start <laughs> playing it live because the yeah. riff at the beginning is so different or so similar rather the only yeah. difference really being the time signature. Golden Eel is in standard time, 4-4, four, four, and Buckingham Green is 6-8. So, mm-hmm. like, the Golden Eel is like... Bam, 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 bam. And then Buckingham Green is... Bam, 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 So, like, they use pretty much the same guitar tone. And so, at first, you're like, wait, which one is it? <laughs> oh, okay. It's the one that they played way more than the other one. Right. Again, we'll get to that. But the Golden Eel, I think, is uh, is just a great little—I don't even want to say it's an interlude. It's kind of like a Queen song, and like mm-hmm. how like big it is. It's it's like it's almost like their version of power pop in a way, not like overtly, but like that that's they're reaching those same sort of dynamic highs and lows with like how the song can go from like super loud to super quiet and like a short little span. It's great. I, I it enjoy is. it. I like that one. I, I, and lyrically, I don't know really what the fuck they're talking about, but I uh, I like it. An endless barrage of shit racking my mind. It's I pretty, mean, is I that think, not literal. Relatable? It's one of their most literal songs in the lyrics, like sitting alone in the den watching the eel. Would you believe mm-hmm. he was sitting alone in a den watching the eel in the corner? Like it's like basically he was writing the song in the dark, like he was 
I think on acid, just like depressed from whatever thing he was going through. And he was at his friend's house that had a golden eel and a terrarium or, or a tank or whatever. Yeah. And he was, that just came to him as this like inspiration. And so, yeah, it's like the song is like, I cannot reveal the words of the golden eel. It's like, well, you probably are just imagining whatever he's saying anyway. Not that acid works like that, despite whatever you see in movies, but <laughs> it is pretty literal. Like it's, it's it's like a guy who's like lost and he yeah he's going he's got a barrage of shit blocking his mind and mm. it, for some reason his uh, spirit just reaches out to this eel and it speaks the truth to him but he can't share it's like a it's like a hidden secret you can't just go out and tell everyone what the eel told you or else it completely you know nullifies what it was trying to do absolutely so gotta keep it to yourself right it's a it's a it's a banger, it's as a banger. the kids say, as I say, not, not just quite for a eels. slapper, but a banger for sure. N- not just for eels, it's for people no. as well, and several other types of mammals. Yes, I, track I, nine. I mean, Cole blows yes. the wind. Cole blows the wind. great song uh i think it's one of their few songs where they sing a complete harmony the entire time like a blanket harmony almost Mm -hmm. it's kind of like also frightened by animal collective not sure if y'all have heard of them but it is one of those songs where like from the beginning every lyric is harmonized so like one is doing the high one is doing the low and Mm. i've tried to sing along to the high one it kills the vocal (laughs) chords it is hard to sing along to and you, I believe it because there's a bit on that All, Re- All Request Live album where they play this uh, song. They get to the end of it and he goes, it kills me to sing like that. I'm like, I fucking believe <laughs> it, dude. You're doing a high, like a really awkward high octave for like five minutes straight. And to think that they uh, pitch shift so much, but yet that was That's not. True. Uh... <laughs> well, I think it fits. Not the case this on this is, one. This is a, we talked about. We referenced it earlier. It's a folk song called The Unquiet Grave, which I think is just a traditional folk song that's had a number Mm. of arrangements and interpretations. But this was just their version. This was, like I said, the one that they recorded in that beach house when everything was gray and you could hear the waves crashing and thunder and the storm brewing. And it all comes across in this song, which I'm pretty sure is about like going to like a loved one's grave and mourning every single day just because you can't live without them. And, you know, one kiss is all I uh, need or crave rather. Hmm. Um, I, there's, I recommend Googling other versions of it or YouTubing other versions of the unquiet grave. Cause there's one where there's this guy in the forest. He's wearing like a skull uh, mask and he's playing it on a banjo. It's a great, uh, arrangement, but the vocal, or like the the imagery at first, is kind of like, wait, what? Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> you know what? It's folk music. I'm not going to question it. I would prefer it be a guy in the woods with a banjo if we're going to do folk music. 
that's yeah, that's that's like legit. Uh, I'm just this reading is the point the where I make a rich man north of Richmond joke, but I haven't even listened to it, so <laughs> I can't even attempt the joke. It wouldn't make sense because I, you can't make a joke without knowing what you're saying. I'm just reading through the lyrics right now for "Cold Blows the Wind" um, that I didn't read before. I heard them, but I don't know if I necessarily really let them sink in. Go fetch me a nun from the dungeon deep and water from a stone and white milk from a maiden's breast. That babe e'er never known. Yeah, I don't know who wrote those lyrics. It was probably like four or five hundred years ago. Yeah. So they're, I think they didn't do very much translation or like changing any of the words. I think they were just kind of... Like I said, I think it was just like figuring out the chords and the melody and really they didn't change mm-hmm. much else. But then again, because it is an old folk song, there's like 80 verses and they're like, yeah, let's do like four. And yeah, yeah. do the one so, about the maiden's breasts. Yeah. Um, it's uh, those sound old timey. Those lyrics sound old timey. Yes. And it reminds me, it's very similar to, did you ever hear that Panda Bear cover of the folk song Long Lankin? Long Lankin. Yeah, there's no. like a there's a show called The Shivering Truth on Adult Swim, and there's this old folk song called uh, Long Lankin, and I, I think it's most famously covered by a band called the Wainwright Sisters. And so they use that as their ending credit music for the first season, and then the second season premiere had a cover by none other than Panda Bear Noah wow, himself. That's, that's wild that I actually don't know about that at all. Yeah, I'll have to send that to you uh, after we're done, but... It's uh, it if you listen to them back to back, like "Cold Blows the Wind" or the original "Unquiet Grave" with Long Lankin, they have a very similar, like bleak, dark, uh, like uh, I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember the name of those people that did the folk stories where they all have like really fucked up endings that like got sanitized for children as time went on. Like I think Grimm's? they're German. Like the Grimm's. Uh... Oh, yes, the Brothers Grimm. That's who I'm thinking of. It's kind of like that sort of uh, aesthetic slash tone. I don't know. Okay. But I I think Cold Blows the Wind is definitely, like, the most emotionally resonant song on the album. Besides maybe it's going to be all right, but that's sort of more hopeful. This is 100% bleak. There's no uh, spot of sun anywhere in this song. So it's... can gut you but it's okay it's, it's gutting it's gutting but it's good if if you are someone that enjoys you know surrounding yourself in feels then this song is actually I, I will say that this song is probably my second favorite after mutilated lips just because i'm like you know the kind of person that likes to really like just fucking wallow <laughs> in uh in all things uh sorrowful well, I feel like it's one of those songs where you forget how long it is sometimes. Like, when I re-listen to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is almost five minutes. But, you know, it, it just works. Yeah, it all it, works, it works together. Okay, so that, that... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, if you still have stuff, stuff to say about that song, then uh, by all means go forth. I was going to say, like, for, for a song that has that much emotional depth leading into the next song pink eye on my leg
masterful, masterful fucking uh, just gear shift <laughs> by this band. Yes. It is a very silly little interlude that they put on there. It's kind of like the equivalent of the title track, uh, Pet mm-hmm. Sounds. Yeah, from the album okay. Pet Sounds. Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, Let's Go Away for a While, I think, is the other one on that album that's like an instrumental. And it's like, yeah, it goes from this very sorrow folk song to like, do, 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 do. Um, so Pink Eye on My Leg is actually a rework of a song that was supposed to be on the album originally called Kim Smoltz. Smoltz is, but it's a fantastic song. Uh, it still shares that like uh, sort of melody, that like square synth, the it's like it kind of is on Pink Eye on my leg a little bit, but it it goes off in a completely different direction. It's like all over the place on that one. But Kim Smoltz is very much like a verse chorus verse chorus kind of song, and it's beautiful. I I think. They said the only reason they didn't include it on the album is because it uh, they didn't want to put too many depressing songs in a row. I'm like, well, right. it's followed up by a song called Waving My Dick in the Wind, so it would have worked fine, but <laughs> can't always. I think they also were quoted once by saying, we write a bunch of songs for the album and then always end up picking the worst ones. So, <laughs> Well, uh, I so- got to say, for uh, Pink Eye on My Leg, I will say that this is my least favorite song of the album. Right. Um, I, 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 I think a I lot like of people it. agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like it in terms of it just sort of being, you know, a, a, a slap in the face to wake you up from what you just heard before. But like, and, and also, I mean, you have to take into consideration like when it was made as well. Cause I feel like what came to mind when I was listening to it, like a couple days ago was like, you know, hearing like the dog barking samples, like kind of, it, it's like, <laughs> you know those um like you know those like cheap like yamaha keyboards and you have like the dj mode or oh whatever yeah 100 percent. yeah it, it reminded me of that where it's like you know you could have thrown in some of those like dj dj like you know s- samples uh in there too and it was just like that's what that's what we're working with and we're gonna you know make it make a song out of that so I don't know they may have um, had a different I don't know. Appeal that seems to, to it me like the out. instrumental came first, and then they just found that dog thing, and <laughs> like late in the in the production, they were like, "Hey, let's throw this in there, just to fuck yeah. with people and make them think there's a dog barking." I'm not kidding. The first time I listened to this album, when I heard the dog bark, I was like, "Which one of my fucking dogs just did that?" And then it kept happening. I was like, "Oh, it's in the music." It's like when you hear a police siren in a song. 
and you have to sometimes just pause it and make sure there's not a police siren close to wherever you're listening to it. Yeah, that's become like the bane of my existence while I'm like driving my car. Mm. I fucking hate that. Like there's so many like 90s hip hop songs that have police sirens in them and I can't listen to any of them in my car now because I keep thinking I'm getting pulled over. But well, don't uh, they do they have the same siren in Canada? I mean, there's a variety of sirens between all of the sort of, you know, uh emergency vehicles, but uh right. Well, maybe yeah, in Quebec I, I'm not, they would I'm have not, the French siren. But <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not like fine-tuned enough to know the difference between all the different sirens, so I hear a siren, I, I immediately panic no matter what mm-hmm. siren it is. So uh, Speaking of I'm, that, I think I remember driving with someone once when we were listening to On Delay from Animal Collective's Painting With album, and they mm. thought that like that one vocal sample in the song that's like, Ew, they thought that was a siren. And I was oh, like, really? no, you're just paranoid. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a bit of a stretch, that one. <laughs> yeah, but it is what it is. Um, it is what it is. All right. Track 11, Waving My Dick in the Wind. If you're going to show this album to kids, skip this track, even though it is fun for adults um, because it's kind of a silly song. I think this one was definitely meant to be on their album, 12 Golden Country Greats, which only has 10 songs. But I think the 12 might be a reference to the session musicians. That is up for debate. But Mm. it is kind of funny that the album is called 12 and it only has 10 songs. But Waving My Dick in the Wind is just a silly little song about pretty much that. It's just like it's like Johnny on the Spot where it's very repetitive with its lyrics, mm-hmm. but it, it just works. And, and this one has like a very interesting uh, chord or just like note progression that most Ween songs don't like. They do have like that Steely Dan sort of quality where mm-hmm. like they will just like have a, l- a little interlude with like the hits and the melody hitting at the same time kind of passages but it's not like entire breakdowns or thing it's just like a quick little uh whatever whatever you want to call it intermission or something Mm. like that i'm running out of words always happens (laughs) an hour and a half into our podcasts um what are words i think william shakespeare asked that once but he just just he just ended up with words 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 right don't know yes which is uh you know more confusing than anything I think, One thing um, I appreciate about this song is uh, Jimmy Wilson is named in the lyrics, and then they're oh. like, "Do a dance for us, Jimmy," and then and if you listen to it with headphones, you can hear. I think it's Gene doing an old man voice, and they're like, "Dance, yeah. Jimmy." He goes, "Well, I can't dance like I used to. I'm an old man now." Yeah, it's like I'm doing the best I can, or whatever. Doing the best I can. Yeah, <laughs> it's very South Parky. Yeah, it's um, that's a, it's a funny song. I mean, like, um, and I, it I love South Park. It's like the same year that the South Park started. This album inspiration came out. for literally everything, I guess, came from this album. But mm-hmm. um, I, I love also, the idea that what you said earlier, you know, like if you're gonna play this record for your kids, skip this song. But the beauty is, is that probably a lot of kids did listen to this album because of Ocean Man. That's true, and uh, I, I love that kind of, you know, like. Um, well, if you're going to skip any song for kids, it should be the Blarney Stone because they're swearing constantly. And oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there's but, a lot of stuff that's very not like kid friendly on this album. And I would say this, I, yeah, this is just a goofy and, and and Dick itself isn't like the worst 
quote-unquote swear word. I mean, it's just a more crude term to describe your anatomy. So, yeah. yeah, sure. It is what I mean, it is. But... could have been called waving your penis in the wind. But... Or it could have been called song not found. And then they just don't <laughs> include it on the album. But... But I do like the idea, like, I mean, it seems to me, like, I, I have a very limited knowledge of this band, obviously, but I think, like, to me, there, there was some of that, like, that punk rock ethos in there where it's, like, fucking with people is, is, part of, is part of the fun of the whole thing. So I think, like, they probably, they, I, I, like I said, limited knowledge of this band and what, what you know, they, they like and don't like. But I think, like, based on what I've heard, it seems like something that they would find really fucking funny if, like, spongebob kids be like oh i love this ocean man song they listen to it they hear that opening song like, oh my god this is amazing oh it's yeah like definitely the horse, the they probably definitely had a laugh about that yeah. uh retroactively yeah so, so waving my dick in the wind um another one of those songs where i felt like you know if if uh if it was on its own i'd probably be like yeah i don't ever need to listen to this again but it was um interestingly placed in the in the track list and it and especially leading into buckingham green holy shit yes holy shit a child without an eye made a mother cry why ask why she kept a child clean on buckingham Buckingham Green. What the fuck? The second most played live Ween song ever. Often used as an opener into their live sets. Especially when I saw them in Dallas, it opened with it. So there's a meme in the Ween community where it's like, um, uh, I think it's like some regular meme and you just like put whatever music it is in there that you've. So the meme is like, I must be X because I keep getting played. And so the meme is, I must be Buckingham Green because I keep getting played. Um, <laughs> played meaning like, you know, trying to follow a romantic interest and then you end up empty handed and you've been played. Uh, right, I'm not going right. to sit here and explain black culture to people, but that's Urban Dictionary. <laughs> what comes to out. mind. Anyway, you seemed like you were about to go into a whole thing about the composition of it. I mean, it's a prog rock song, right? It's uh, it it it's it's kind of kind of a big thing, like it uh, it's definitely a song. Like I, th- I think that there's obviously a lot of thought went into "Pink Eye on My Leg," waving my dick in the wind into Buckingham Green. You know, and especially yeah. because that to go those from two those songs... two silly little things into this big epic. Yeah, and especially, especially because like right before that, uh, "Cold Blows the Wind" is is kind of like this, you know, emotional piece. Buckingham Green was like one of those ones where it was just like, you know, oh my god, okay, so now after that, now this, but it's like one of those things. Like like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, like um, I think each song, because of the stark difference, it really the lends juxtaposition the power. exactly. It's like, um, you know, the, the sweet isn't as sweet without the sour, right? So it's like Buckingham Green sounds so fucking epic because I've just listened to two effectively joke songs. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's also like the structure of it is kind of different than most Ween songs because, like, if you do have a, a solo or a jam session, 
it's like your standard 16 bars or something but most mm. of the song in buckingham green is like uh this constantly evolving like song structure like it starts one place and then it goes to another and then it goes to a third mm. and then it eventually loops right back around to the verse which almost seems like uh superfluous after a certain point because it is just so like composed and i believe i'm i'm saying the word composed specifically because dean ween when he did a uh write-up of the 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary one of the two uh he said it was their most composed song to date and i believe it because like you said it's very prog rocky and yeah it um really doesn't resemble many other songs on the album except maybe the golden eel but even that has more of a structure to it than this this is more just like you're following the journey of the music not necessarily the the lyrics or the vocals definitely yeah it's so, uh sorry go on no i i was going to transition to ocean man but oh. it seemed like you wanted to talk more about this song so go for it well no i just um it's it's a standout like i feel like you know like like we've mentioned many times every song sounds a little different but this one was like kind of one of those ones where it was just like okay like i you know i don't know it felt like it demanded my attention a bit more and just because it felt so different but all but somehow not overly out of place even though it's quite different than the rest of the stuff on the album and i think that that's real testament to to the track listing or however maybe they thought out the album in terms of its flow well i think the structure of a lot of albums tends to have like the big climax song before the closer which will more often than not be like a falling action thing like if you're following the flow of like a movie plot uh typically like i think sam's town by the killers is a good example how it's like uh the song i can't remember the name of it I should probably just look it up while we're talking, but it's like the the penultimate song is like this big moving epic song, and then the last one is very low key and sort of um okay, so there's this river is wild, which is like this big uh up swinging thing, and then why do I keep counting is sort of like that, but a little more low key and then they just have like a reprise of the uh it's like interlude and exit lude. So it's like the first one's like, we hope you enjoy the album. And then it's like, we hope you enjoyed your stay at Sam's town, the hotel. So I think okay. Buckingham green and ocean man actually kind of work together as that sort of crescendo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because they do both have sort of an upbeat quality to it. And I guess I'll just go ahead and use this opportunity to transition to that because since we both heard ocean man by itself out of context of this album for so many years, um, to hear it come right after Buckingham Green is almost just like when you have to slam on the brakes in traffic and you sort of like your your head like snaps into a different <laughs> thing where you're just like, wait, what? Oh, that that's here. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Was not expecting that, but here we are now. Um, of course, Ocean Man's a great song, but coming out of something as like big and grand and sweeping as Buckingham Green, it's like going mm-hmm. from Mozart to Fish, you know, <laughs> where you're just like, whoa, shit, okay. But then you just get right into it because you know all this, the words to Ocean Man, and it's got this big, happy, 
um what do you call it uh mandolin uh strumming throughout the whole thing and you got those deep vocals playing throughout the whole thing um yeah i first heard it in the spongebob squarepants movie as i'm sure you did and Mm -hmm. i was just like i didn't know there was a like i didn't think about it too much as a kid but just hearing a song called ocean man you're like oh is that a song about spongebob i mean (laughs) i don't really think about him living in the ocean he lives in bikini bottom i guess that's under the ocean but it's more of a sea it's like the gulf of mexico because it's technically outside (laughs) of galveston so right i don't know but it's a great song. Everyone <laughs> everyone should know Ocean Man, or has at least heard it, you know, in passing maybe once in their life. What uh at what point in the movie does that song play? I, I can't. It's like right it. as the credits start. So it's, it's like the, it's the credit music. SpongeBob gets promoted to manager of the Krusty Krab too, and he goes, yeah. This is the greatest day of my life. He jumps up, it's a freeze frame, and then it's like they kind of fade in on the uh the drum roll that starts the song. So it's it's like kind of like cuts it off a little bit, but then it just goes right into Ocean Man, take me by the hand, lead me to the land. It's just such a perfectly written little ditty. It's like one it, of those songs yeah. that is just like I wouldn't change anything about it. Every note it's, is like in the perfect place. The structure, the uh, the solo being it pretty short for Ween standards. Mm-hmm. It's really like maybe eight bars, and then they go back into the. Because the verse and chorus are just, and the refrain are so good that they don't want to spend too much time away from it. It's it's fantastic. I, I have no, I don't really think I can do this song justice by just describing it because it is just, everything just works together so perfectly with it. Yeah, you definitely have to, to listen to it if you haven't. Listeners out there, listen to this song. And uh, I, I feel like, you know, this this is the best entry point for, for Ween or for the mollusk. Like, it, it's, it is the the ocean, like, you know, the, this, this subaquatic um, theme throughout the album is perfectly encapsulated in Ocean Man. I mean, it, 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 I feel like the album could have been called Ocean Man and it would have worked just as well. Right. But, and I think um, this was one of the songs that helped them decide on the theme they were going for because it was like one of the first three or four oh, yeah? songs that they wrote and recorded. Okay. So it makes that complete makes sense. sense. That makes sense. It's funny. And, I'll t- just want to make like a l- l- slight tangent here because like the SpongeBob SquarePants movie soundtrack. So, okay. So I, I forget exactly when that. I'm guessing it was like early 2000s that that movie came out. It was 04. Oh, four. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was like, you know, into music already at that point and stuff. And SpongeBob was like a weird one. Cause like when that came out, I was watching Nickelodeon as a kid, but like, you know, I remember seeing that and I was like, okay, this seems like a, a like a weird show. And I, I was already like a teenager at that point. So I'm like, like, this is awesome because, you know, I don't want to watch like cartoons that are for, for kids. I want to watch something like Ren and Stimpy was like the, the only thing kind of maybe before that that was to kind of bridge that gap between like kind of stuff that was pushing the envelope for like a kid's show mm-hmm. and SpongeBob, you know, it was like, okay, this is such a, like a weird, like kind of trippy idea to get like off, off the, off the bat. And then like you'll watch the episodes and they'd have kind of like that gross out animation or whatever, like, you know, when SpongeBob's like dried out or whatever, you'd be like, holy shit. Or even just in the movie when they're writing on, uh, uh, David Hasselhoff's back as he's yeah. swimming all the way back to Bikini Bottom and they have like this 20 foot long fake David Hasselhoff that they're filming the close ups on so they can animate Spongebob and Patrick onto it later 
Yeah, and his face uh, is just the, smiling. The Alec and, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was like this is kind of like weird thing, right? It was just kind of like, okay, this is like kind of like not for kids, kind of like this. This feels like a drug trip. And you're, uh, you're saying Ocean Man, the song itself, SpongeBob, or SpongeBob as a whole, SpongeBob. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tie this all in right now. So it's okay. So I'm saying SpongeBob as a whole, but when I saw the movie and the soundtrack came out, like I immediately bought the soundtrack because I was like, I heard the like the Flaming Lips song on that, and, and it was it's part. Of, it was like the whole fucking thing was like, okay, so you got Flaming Lips on here. You got well, wait, Motorhead real quick. How here. how old were you when it came out? The movie in '04. So in '04, um, so I was born in '87. So that would have been oh okay. 80. Yeah, so I was a teenager. Uh, yeah, I was like a nine year old. I was like <laughs> I was like nine, eight or nine. So yeah, so I was like like the like like bands like Flaming Lips and Motorhead were bands that I I was like already into. So I was like, this is so weird this is the soundtrack to this kid's movie. But ocean man was like one of those songs. Like, cause I bought, I bought the soundtrack and I remember like listening to it and I don't even know if like, it's, it's just like, you know how, how I just asked a little while ago, like where in the movie was that? I don't even know if back then I remembered exactly when ocean man was, but when I heard the song on the album, I was like, man, this song is like really trippy as well. It's just slaps, you know? But it also yeah, I mean, feel, besides the feel, fact that the it feels so- too psychedelic for for like a kid's soundtrack. Yeah, that's kind of what I was gonna say. Is like the the rest of the song sounds like normal. It's just the fact that the vocals are so deep yeah. that it has that sort of incongruity to it. But it all it just works somehow. And again, I think it's one of those where they recorded it at like like E flat and then transposed it down seven stops to like G major. And so right. that's why it sounds so. Uh, like low but again it may be like who knows maybe it's like poseidon is the one singing it and that's why it's such a deep voice mm. who knows right who but knows? it's 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 like the quintessential like it's like the quintessential ween meme song it's like they're my girls it just happens mm. to be the most popular one which i guess we should briefly mention that it was like a meme at one point like tiktok was musically and maybe didn't even exist when it was blowing up i think it was like a youtube thing um like shit posts were coming in big in in 2016 2017 like that sort of like deep fried meme culture was emerging around mm. then and for some reason ocean man was just used like i think there was like a doomer wave version of it which is just like you know play it at 75 percent speed and it p- pitches it down even more uh so it, it just was randomly getting used in memes everywhere and then it just shot up to their most streamed song more so than it already had being included on the spongebob soundtrack so uh, if you have never even heard of Ween, like I said, there's probably a chance you've heard this song. But if not, if you listen to one song off this album that's going to sell you on it, it should be Ocean Man. It's Ocean Man, for sure. But we should also reinforce what we've, what we've been saying, which is that stylistically it's all over the place. But it's a good thing at the end of the day. Yeah. And that brings us the to the final track. Song. Yeah. She Wanted to Leave with Hidden Track, which... I mean, if you're going to do a fucking hidden track, don't put it in the title. That gives it away. Three men, so they were. Three men out at sea. Three men came aboard my ship and took my true love from me. I couldn't believe 
like Beach House when they put when they did Irene, you're like, why is this song 16 minutes long? And then the first song ends at like six minutes, and then the second song it's like seven minutes of silence, and then the last song kicks in at like 13 minutes. So it is literally a hidden track. But it's like you can't. The hidden track in this one is just they do the melody from from the uh, opener dancing right? in the song uh, yeah. dancing in the show tonight. But it's like very slowed down, and they have like ocean waves and wind over it. So it's like it's kind a bit of like more a little, somber. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like an epilogue sort of tag mm. kind of thing. But we were talking about it earlier with Cold Blows the Wind. This is like a very melancholic sort of romance song. It's like a, mm-hmm. a sea shanty. He's got that yeah. sort of Irish accent going. I can't remember who Gene said that he was inspired. He's like one specific singer-songwriter inspired the style of this song. Uh, and he wasn't sure about it, but then he played it just on guitar for Dean, the other guy. And he was like no absolutely we should record this this is great i see what you're going for here like don't question it just let's just record it and it works perfectly it ties the whole thing together like it's it's like a bittersweet ending almost you know Mm -hmm. where both in the like oh the album's over but it's also like you know it's the end of this fictional relationship but it's also like you know maybe she'll be happy with whatever guy that she feels is better for her than me so it just sort of brings it it is it is the bow that ties the whole album together you know without it i don't know how you would really end this album like ocean man probably could be the ending yes i just bumped the mic not gonna edit it out uh (laughs) but this one being the ending just works it just works so perfectly yeah you know it does and it's a beautiful one to to sing along with it really like you know i think singing can often bring out like dopamine or other things that make you feel things Mm -hmm. uh, and break you out of your shell. But this is especially one of those where you just get caught up in the emotion of the song while you're singing it. Um, So it's, it's sometimes when I'm covering it while I'm like playing the keyboard and singing it, I'll fuck up the chord pattern just because I'm so into the melody, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels like that kind of song for sure. Um, Yeah. It's a sing along for sure, but definitely an emotional one. Yeah. It's, it's like if, if there's, if everyone is too drunk to sing when they're doing the, after they sing the Blarney stone, but they're still going with their pub songs. This yeah. is the one where it's just the one guy singing it and he's got the best voice in the whole bar. <laughs> totally. That's a good way of putting that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, interesting though. Like, so with the, with the hidden track, the quote unquote hidden track, like, when you were, did you ever listen to much? Like, did you did you buy music on CD when you were growing up, or are you more of like digital music? I didn't like become conscious of albums as like a thing until I was already buying stuff on iTunes. But I right. knew that like people would hide hidden tracks on CDs. Like, uh, there's a song called "Quesadilla" at the end of this album by The Used. It's not marked on anything. It's like they play this whole song, and then at the end, there's like 30 seconds of silence, and then there's this 30-second song where the guy is like, Quesa, Dia, Quesa, Dia, Quesa, Dia. And it's, it is it is basically like a ween-type song, where it's just this yeah. silly little thing, but it's like the used is so very like serious and emotional that <laughs> to just hide this thing that's not marked on the track listing for whoever is just letting the thing loop or whatever. Yeah. Um, Loads of bands did that, like back in the '90s, and and I I would say probably early 2000s when CDs was like the the major format. Like, and it would it would be I I I will say, probably for the most part, goofy songs. Like it would be you'd get that you know ten minutes of silence on the last track or whatever, and then 
what the fuck some some goofy song like I, I think the first time i was introduced to that concept was on a corn album uh follow the leader right at the very ends of the song it's a very emotionally driven song at the end of that album you get like about 10 minutes pause and then they do a cover of a cheech and chong song called earache my eye and i was like what the fuck is going on here but I, I wait think a second. Are you telling me that corn smokes weed? Yeah, I mean, uh, I it would seem that way. It would seem I that way. I cannot believe that. Yeah, you think they just eat corn? They, um, like, I think back in those days when you bought a CD, at least my experience, like my CD player didn't have like the timestamp on what you're listening to. Like it would just be like track one, track two, track three. Yeah, and I think the, the CD player I had was basically that. Yeah, it's like this has been this weird thing, like now that everything's digital and you can immediately see like how long a song is, it's been this weird thing for me because it's like I'll now kind of like realize how long a song was that I used to listen to when I was like a teenager or something, where before I had like no concept. So I'd be like, I'll listen to like um, I don't know like a Blink One Eighty Two song or something. Be like, oh, this song's only like two and a half minutes or something. It felt like it was like at least three and a half, but I had no concept of it. So it's like it was funny because you know, in the digital age when you have those hidden tracks, it's like yeah, they're not so hidden because you've got like you know an eight minute song and you know it's not going to be that long and there's some silence in between. So it's it's kind of weird. Right. But well, I think it also works on, on the CD, CD yeah. format because, uh, yeah, like a lot of CD portable CD players would just loop the disc when mm-hmm. you got to the end of it if you had it set to that. And so I think having that little like, like if you have it set to loop, it'll go from the slower version to just the regular right. version. Right back and into it, it does sort of just work as like this circular, cyclical, circular yep. uh, thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, we didn't do this on our previous two albums because we didn't have it available, but because Ween, like we said, writes so many songs per album and then only picks a handful, uh, there's a number of prolific B-sides that we should quickly mention before we move on to our movie, so we're not here for four hours. Right. Um, so we already talked about Kim Smoltz. Uh, quick detail on that. It, it They never played it live until 2016, and it was like the first month that they reunited after having broken up for like four or five years. So it was like the perfect time to just drop a fan favorite like that. And there's a version someone recorded on YouTube of them doing it live. And it's just like, it's like you wouldn't even know that it aged 20 years in between then. It's just such a, it it just persists as this like very well-written song. And it is the one song where you hear it and you're like, how is this not on the fucking album? But again, like I said, (laughs) they didn't want to overload it with emotions. I get it, but it's like, Come on, fucking pink eye on my leg. The fuck? <laughs> but, of course, we can always make our own custom playlists like we talked about. Um, That's true. So there's also a song called Coco, which is very island uh, tropical themed. Again, one of those where it's like it might have been too on the nose in terms of the concept they were going for. Um, but it, 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 you hear it and you're like, how was this not on? Uh Okay, this one I can kind of see how it's not on the album, but it is just a solid little thing. It, you kind of forget that it is a Ween song. Like, sometimes when they nail the genre so well, like, you could just envision it being sung by a number of other artists. Or, like, it even kind of sounds like an authentic sort of 
uh i don't know what you would even call it like it's like uh soft mambo jazzy sort of uh i don't know like it, it does have some sort of like caribbean feeling to it like mm. you you put it on you feel like you should be listening to it when you're on mike love's yacht or something down on <laughs> off the florida keys you know right on your way to kokomo unless he's just listening to his own music which is pretty likely but <laughs> As I was re-listening to it after watching Captain Ron, I was like, this would actually work really well uh, if they found the right scene for this in Captain Ron, like in a montage or in the background of one of those party scenes or something, because it is just such a, you know, islandy little song. I I think you could probably do one of those like um, Dark Side of Oz sort of uh, renditions of like a Ween album and Captain Ron. I feel like that would... Uh it could it could work you know maybe maybe comprised of these b-sides oh true if you if you did like some sort of mega playlist because it is only like a 41 minute album or something like that yeah that's the problem with like matching an album to a movie it's like well movies are twice as long as albums or even three (laughs) times so that so you're just going to get halfway through the movie and then just silence how does that work they just replay it that's what dark side dark side of uh oz is it just That's loops silly. the fucking album. Uh, yeah, I thoroughly hate that. It's it's obviously, it, it obviously was not made to sync. It's just a coincidence. You know, one time in seventh grade, we were we had like a free day and we were watching that movie Journey to the Center of the Earth. Mm. But uh, tying in the last episode, that was around the time I was really into Cloverfield, and um, so the like the credit music that we talked about, I was listening to that on like, I bought it on iTunes and I was listening to it on my headphones while the movie was playing. And it was weird because parts of that credit music was lining up with this shitty Brendan Fraser movie. I mean, I love your Brendan Fraser, but that movie's awful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it just, because of the nature of music and movies, like the rhythms that they go through, sometimes they will line up, sometimes they won't. But I don't think we need to just sit there and find, like, we don't need to do it for everything. Because it's, like, a nice coincidence when it happens. But if you're just going to sit there and do that, like, pair up every album or movie you can think of and try to find the similarities to find that next, you know, Dark Side of Oz matchup. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, it's like going crazy almost, you know? Yeah. So. Um, There's another one called Did You See Me? Oh, yeah. uh, back to the B-sides, uh, which is interesting because it's one of those... They did an album called Shinola Volume 1. There is no Volume 2. It's been twenty, almost 20 years. But it was essentially an album where it was like they took some of the best non-album tracks from like the beginning of their career all the way up to that current point. So like from God Ween Satan back in the late 80s all the way to Quebec in 2003 and then just properly re-recorded them in a studio with like good production and then it's essentially a compilation album but it is it does kind of work as its own ween album because of how varied the song structures on it are so um it's like a sort of a low-key ballad song it's not my favorite by them but it's it's interesting that it you know they have that sort of pattern of like you know dig up stuff from the old folder and it still persists all these years later um so moving on, uh, similar to this one, there's another one called Flutes of the Chi, which was later renamed Flutes of Chi. Hmm. And they recorded that for the album White Pepper, although this one is very much like a sea shanty kind of version where it's that, that waltzy do cha 
do cha cha, which is mm-hmm. still in the recorded version, but that one's a much more like rock band style. But this is more of like closer to the mollusk. And I think Flutes of the Chi is like one of the there's like three really really good B sides from this, and that's like one of the best ones. And it's also like you have that moment. Oh hey kitty, where you're like, why wasn't this on the album? Kitty, I'm recording a podcast. Can you please shut up? Kitty's got something to say. She says, give me pets. I've been hearing you shout for two hours now. She says, actually, you know what? This Ween album, I have some thoughts. She's like, can you move on to Captain Ron already? I promise <laughs> we're almost there. Um, But yeah, the that that's one of those where you hear Flutes of the Chi and you're like, how is this not on the mollusk? Okay, well, at least we have the demo, and they recorded it for another album, so I can rest easy. <laughs> um, then there's Vinny the Eel, which is just like, I don't know if you know Edgar Winter. He did a slow ride, you know, down, 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 that okay. one. It's okay. kind of like one of those songs by him. It's very uh, basic. It's just like the most of the lyrics of the song is just Vinny the Eel, Vinny the Eel, Vinny the Eel, and then... They wrap up the section by going, it's all right. So it's just like a kind of a casual classic rock thing, but it's fun. It's cool. Um, Yeah. And then there's the Argus. Now, there's a song on Quebec called the Argus, but they're completely different. Um, This one predates the other one, but that hasn't stopped fans from just calling it the Argus part two, which is how most people know it. Um, So this, this version is the Argus part two. And the Quebec yes. version is the the Argus. Even though they're completely unrelated, aside right. from the fact that they both have the name the Argus and include that in the lyrics. Um, uh, one it was is a good like, song. It was good. This, this version of the Argus, I haven't heard the Quebec version, but this was a good one. Yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, rarities. It's like in my top five never released on an album ween songs because mm-hmm. it's just this like melancholy little ditty. It, it It's hard to describe, but... I mean, of course, I'm sure they've heard the sample by now that I've played, so they'll know what I'm talking about. But it does have this, like, sort of whimsical, magical... It's like something you would hear in, like, a kid's movie where uh, they ride on the backs of dragons or something, you know? Sure, I could see that. It's kind of like, you know, we're back home now and everything's... uh, We saved the day, we went through our adventure, and now we're being tucked into bed by our parents kind of song, like, roll the credits. Totally. Yeah, I love. I can see that. And I, that's one of those songs where the first time you, I heard it, I think I literally played it like four or five times in one day because I was just like, <laughs> fuck, that's so good. And now it's stuck in my head and I have to just keep listening to it. <laughs> it so. was a standout for sure from like the outtakes and the B-sides. Yeah, The Ween was on fire at this point and they still put out a handful of other great records after it. But it's worth pointing out that I think everyone qu- kind of agrees that this was, if not Quebec, uh, then the mollusk was their greatest album uh to date hopefully fingers crossed they re- record again but they probably won't based on the fact that like their method for writing songs was like get fucked up jam something out record it and then come back to it later when sober and flesh it out and now that <laughs> gene ween is in has been in recovery for however many years that's probably never gonna like, I don't know if they could get into that headspace again to match the quality of their previous work mm. without all the drugs that they were, you know, using and inspired by to make all the fan favorites and hits. Yeah. But 
well, the Mollusk see, will still persist. It's a classic album. Go listen to it. It's a 10 out of 10 uh, by my standards. Maybe a 9 out of 10. I don't rank albums. Might have <laughs> said that last episode or the first one. But I, I, it's easier for me to rate a movie than it is an album uh, with, a, yeah. with a 1 to 10 scale for sure. I agree with that. Yeah, it it, it was a it was a very um, weird album um, as a first time listener to it, and I I want to hear more. Um, I I liked it a lot. It was, you know, what it actually felt like a lot to me. Uh, and I have this kind of like in my notes here before we before we move on. I know everyone's just you know so You're clamoring ready to, for that Captain Ron discussion. Captain Ron. But what I did um, what I did notice and. I don't know if you're familiar with this this band, the Dwarves. You familiar the with the dwarves, dwarves? As in, like, like tiny people, not the Doors, <laughs> the Jim Morrison band. Yeah, it's 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 a cover band of the Doors, but it, they're all little people. No, it's there's a punk band. Oh God, uh, called... I thought you were. <laughs> I actually did believe that for a second. <laughs> no, anyway. that would be uh, that'd be wild, wildly inappropriate, but. Um... No, there's. I mean, a, uh, if they're the ones that came up with it, maybe not. Well, yeah, sure, yeah, that's true. Anyway, the Dwarves. Yeah. So the Dwarves, uh, they they were a punk band. Uh, they still are a punk band. Started in the '80s, um, and they're still going. But they, um, I, I felt like there were some similarities. There were some similarities, and especially because Ween, you know, did kind of have their punk rock stuff as well. Like at the beginning. The thing with the Dwarves, so, like, they're, like, one of my favorite punk rock bands. They're fucking awesome. And I'm sure at some point, if we continue this podcast show, we'll probably do a Dwarves album. But um, they, so one thing that they suffer from is the tone. Like, they'll write albums that will have, you know, maybe half of the tracks will be, like, like, they'll never do anything, like, super serious, but, like, they'll, they'll be stuff that just kind of would resonate with anybody, but then they'll also, like, half of the tracks will be, like, something that's just super offensive for the sake of being offensive or something that's, like, super jokey just to kind of rile people up or something. And I right. felt like this album kind of was in a similar vein where it was just like, okay, like, you know, who is this for exactly, right? Like, it's 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 for it's for the guys that made it, right? Like, it's like it's for this band. They enjoy the shit. They enjoy making like the waving my dick song as much as they enjoy making mutilated lips. So they want to do both of it. And that's fucking awesome. But it's one of those things where it's like, you know, a casual listener might be like, Whoa, what, what's like, what is happening right here? And, um, the dwarves, like they're, they're, um, I guess main songwriter frontman, um, a man that goes by many names, but, uh, his, I guess most known name is Blag Dahlia. Um, he just re- released an album last year and, uh, it's like, it's kind of like a serious album. It's like his like mature, you know, like songwriter album, but it has uh, a song called I wouldn't fuck her with your dick on it. But in the midst of like other songs that you could play for like your parents and right. then something like this shows up and it's just like one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, dude, like you know, your own sensibility is kind of fucking shot you in the foot here because like it's, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow when you're trying to sell this like singer songwriter, almost like Americana album. But then you've got songs that like still blend in with like that punk ethos. And I felt like Ween was, Ween did it much more gracefully on the mollusk, but like, 
I yeah, felt they know like how to they balance were kind it. Of, yeah, going going into that territory a little bit, which it, it's kind of like a mixed bag for me, where it's like I kind of understand like some people that might listen to him just being like kind of just you know like surface level offended by some of that shit and just be like, oh well, this band's not for me then. But I also get like the side of it where it's like a band that came from you know like a, a punk kind of like beginning and then making an album that's kind of easier like more accessible to to mainstream audiences but then still kind of like maintaining some of that kind of fuck you energy on it is is fantastic not always applaud that so well i think it's funny that you mentioned like songs that you show your parents because when it comes to ween i actually had to make a playlist because you know i like to get uh let my parents know what i'm interested in and maybe see if they can get on the same page Mm -hmm. Uh, so with ween it was like i had to make a playlist specifically called ween for moms (laughs) and then just didn't include any of the songs that could be like vulgar or offensive like obviously my mom is not a child but you know she doesn't want to necessarily hear you know a a pirate (laughs) swearing about fucking and you know all this other stuff in the in the span of a ween album uh but also kind of going to what you were saying about the dwarves i think a misconception people have with ween um kind of ties into originally we were going to talk about basketball instead of captain ron but <laughs> right there was a connection with like the the trey and matt and the ween like sensibilities and the sense of humor is that i think like how south park doesn't go out of their way to be offensive they just naturally are offensive mm-hmm. ween i don't think goes out of their way to be weird they just are weird and of course when they're high on whatever it sort of is easy it comes out easier so i think a lot of people have like oh they're just like a joke weird band they don't really take it seriously it's like fucking listen to quebec and tell me they're a joke band that shit will pull your heart out of your ass with how sad some of it is so you know i i think if if people have been reluctant to give ween a chance i think the mollusk is like it it will typically be like the focal point of like taste you know Mm -hmm. if you listen to this and you don't like it then ween's probably not for you but you know it it, i think you'll have more success with using it as a gateway drug uh to the band than other albums maybe quebec but yeah i think this is like the ideal like i said it's like meriwether post pavilion it's like when i tell people i'm into a band and they want a recommendation or i just feel like giving one it's going to be the mollusk every single time so do you feel like um another comparison that i kind of had when i was listening to this like um kind of almost like reminds me a bit of a beck album you know i was gonna say it reminds me of uh like the beatles which of course white pepper their album after this was like directly inspired by the beatles but this is kind of like a sergeant pepper thing almost where yeah those genres are all over the place but there is sort of this loose concept holding the whole thing together Mm -hmm. yeah i kind of like um because some of like those early beck albums like uh they'll like what's the name of it like mutants or mutated things or something like that i forgot mutilated lips no (laughs) um there's there's uh i forget what it's called so it's it's something to do with mutants i'm I'm sure do you remember what year it was let's see uh Uh, it was it was like right before sea change that was the album oh it's just called mutations mutations there we go that album it's like that jumps around from like 
fucking heart-wrenching shit that you would hear on like sea change to like just goofy shit that you you'd like people know back for you know and mm-hmm. it's like I, I feel I, I felt a very similar kind of vibe with that and it's like and, and Beck is a really good example of someone who's able to toggle between those different you know modes without really like losing listeners or it feeling like overly jolting or anything and I felt like this album was similar in that sense where it was just like okay like this is someone who's you know like these are people that have a collection of songs and like they don't necessarily totally match up but like this is just this is them you know and it's like you're getting this like i think i beck's always it's been like that weird, late cause... 90s sensibility right exactly it, it, you got like it's like beck ween primus yeah. they all have yeah. this sort of similar like alternative style of not just music but like there is like a it's not exactly ironic but it it's not in exactly completely serious either yeah. uh, sensibility to it so i think that was just going around and you know of course all these guys are friends with each other like primus and ween did that south park concert les claypool considers the mollusk one of the greatest all-time albums and i don't know if Beck and Ween ever crossed paths, but they probably mm. did at some point. There's a cover of Loser out there that's just like Mac and Talk, uh, like just like it's like the one of the worst things you've ever heard. But it does have the <laughs> lyrics of Loser. It's like in the time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey mutant, and my. It's like I can't picture Ween ever doing this. Like even in their weirdest uh place in life this is just so like removed that it's almost like when people would put parody songs on limewire and Mm. put weird owl in the title (laughs) and then years later he had to be like that wasn't me i didn't say all those horribly offensive things (laughs) so sorry that reggae song you heard is not about bob marley it just sounds like bob marley that's Um, hilarious yeah so the mollusk everyone it's a great album listen to check out the mollusk check out ween Check out Steely Dan. We'll get to them one of these days. Of course. Okay. And listen so that... to Pandy Fackler for a Ween song that's a sort of a loose parody of Steely Dan. Anyway. All right. We talked for this album for about this album for an hour and a half, an hour 45. We got to talk about Captain Ron. Yeah, which leaves us five minutes to talk about Captain Ron, which is more than <laughs> enough time. This so... is your recommendation for the record. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- th- so, okay, so th- this portion of the podcast is going to be, like, I guess me just defending this movie. But, um... You know what? I have to give a little bit of credit where it's due, but like Mike Stoklasa <laughs> on Half in the Bag, I do have some things that I think you could have very easily corrected that would have made it a much better film. But anyway. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, this is not a good film by any stretch. I, I love this film. It's not it has a good, a good ending. It has, has a good, good ending. ending. It's it makes me feel like they shot the ending first with a different director and then something <laughs> happened. Or they shot everything else first with a shitty director and then fired him and hired a, a new director to shoot the ending, which right. is why it's like the quality like spikes towards yeah, the end. It's quite different. Um it, Captain Ron in a nutshell is um a goofy 90s comedy. I, I I'm not totally sure that they make movies like this anymore it's like somewhere it's not full zucker brothers it's uh it's a very middle of the road movie yeah middle of the road movie it's still like slapstick like goofy gags left right and center 
but just like well, I, I read something where they said they were kind of inspired since this is a touchstone pictures who is a subsidiary of disney disney yeah movie uh i remember reading something about how they said they were sort of inspired by like the 50s disney comedies like cheaper mm. by the dozen or uh like herbie the love bug and that kind of stuff where there is like that. sort of a serious it's not like completely goofy and wacky and over the top but there is still a fair amount of comedy in it yeah for sure and that's um I think the the connecting fiber with the mollusk is that tonally it is uh, it's a bit of a jumble. Um, so Captain Ron, for those that haven't seen it, is about a guy and his family. The guy is played by Martin Short, playing strangely the straight man uh, in a comedy, and unfortunately that would have been an amazing and alternate not reality Clegg, movie. But um, Martin Short. Which I found out there's apparently a movie, an entire hour and a half movie about Jiminy Glick. Yeah. Just running I, around I, doing I his stick. I, I never saw around it, different but I celebrities. remember it coming out. So I'll have to check that one out. But he's very much the straight man, like no fat yeah. suit, just uh, regular to show paper you plate how ass versatile an actor like Martin Short is, you know. Well, can we just acknowledge that I apparently just looked this up today. Apparently... They were originally right. planning the yeah. movie to where Martin Short Marty. was going to be Captain yeah. Ron and Kurt Russell was going to be the father. But then they got drunk together Which... one night and decided, ah, fuck it. Let's just switch characters. Now, as yeah. far as the character of Captain Ron goes, great choice. He's fantastic. Kurt Russell kills it in this movie. He's great. He's he's like a stoner surfer guy who's also like the captain of a... Uh, <sighs> I don't let's even just, know what you call let's it. Go with, is let's it just like go with a boat. mini yacht? Is it a, boat. Is it yeah. just a boat with an engine? You I mean, if, yeah, it's if just the a movie had been made with those that role reversal, it would have been fucking terrible. I think. Um, like Kurt Russell absolutely yes. kills this role. Like, <laughs> you know what? I I told you this earlier. Can we just establish this for yeah, the it is. the listeners? This is like yeah. a vacation movie, like the the National Lampoon's Vacation series. This is a vacation yes. movie that does not star Chevy Chase and <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo. It should have. It would have made a whole lot more sense. And oh, apparently really? the script was That's written definitely. with Chevy Chase in mind for the main role. So when you watch the movie, you're like, why isn't this Chevy Chase? It's like, well, because he's six foot five and he looked really like, big on know, that I, tiny fucking boat. This movie, I, I've, you know, like I saw this when I was like a kid. So I can't imagine it really any other way. Like I love Chevy Chase, but like I, I can't picture this as anybody else than who is in the movie. I think like Martin Short, uh, you know, for what it is, I think he, I think he, he, he does a great job. But it is Kurt Russell, as you mentioned, that carries this movie. Um, to just kind of right, because he's the only one that really has any character to work with. Like Martin Short is like the most. It's like the family themselves are yeah. essentially just one character spread across four people uh, when it comes to the dichotomy between them and Captain Ron. Of course, it's like it, it's the sort of arc of the movie is that he's like he's this family guy who's trying to bond with his family who's so used to the suburbs and the city and, you know, the day to day stuff. And they get out on the boat uh, and then Captain Ron comes across as like this big mm. like, you know, the the wild man versus yeah. the straight man. Uh, well, yeah, like, yeah, they're pairing. they're like this, like, and I forgot how I got onto this, and, and so like Captain Ron is like 
this like kind of scumbag that you know shocks all of them because they're like you know this guy is so below us you know and um but i think like you know for for those those listeners out there we're presuming that we have listeners um that don't know what the movie's about so you know upper middle class white family inherit a boat and um they decide to you know clark gable's boat so they decide to clark gable's boat yeah, their uncle Which got I don't, it somehow. It's like their uncle <laughs> yeah, wanted think, in a uh, auction, yeah, something or other, or like a um, uh, what do you call it, an estate sale or something. Yeah, so their plan is, and to, it's worth like uh, a quarter million like dollars. Take or the boat like from where it is to a place where they can sell it, um, but they don't know how to, you know, uh, how to transport the boat. So they have to uh, hire a professional, you know, boat captain when the i guess like agency that's willing to buy the boat finds out that it's in much worse condition than was assumed they give this family like a shitty captain and that comes in the in the way of captain ron who is you know a uh a guy who has one eye and he's a stoner surfer guy almost everything he says uh makes him seem questionable and <laughs> he talks like this the whole time. He dude. is legitimately he's like a character from yeah, Bill he's and Ted. Legitimately, three. like oh, they, they the, made Bill and Ted, you three, know, but archetype of a stoner surfer beach bum guy. Um, but he, he looks exactly like Snake Plissken. But he looks he's like got Snake like Plissken the long hair minus the scars and the eye patch. Yeah, it's the, it, the long hair and I the exact eye covered by the eye patch. I, like yeah, I. I mentioned to Greg before this podcast, I'd like to assume that this is all part of the same universe. Um, it's just another. Maybe it almost was because John Carpenter was almost called in to direct this movie because That's Kurt Russell crazy. was cast like, in the lead. And this is pre escape. John from LA. Carpenter directed Captain Ron. I think that Captain yeah. Ron would probably be like the biggest cult movie of all time. Oh, yeah, it would be yeah, much more John revered Carpenter. if it was, like, from the twisted mind of John Carpenter. <laughs> well, maybe not that because it's a family comedy. But he said that he would have said yes, but mostly for the excuse to shoot in the Caribbean. And let me just say, as someone who's worked on a movie set before, but thankfully not on a boat, that sounds like hell. I would never want to shoot on mm-hmm. a boat because you never are on solid ground. It's constantly moving and swaying, and I feel like I would get seasick Good. Could so happen. fast. I'm not known to get seasick, but, like... Man, I don't know how many hours you have to spend on. Well, a that's boat, a cool thing about this movie I feel is like that, like, it pretty quickly, it legitimately. I mean, I'm sure there's like a couple scenes where they they faked it, but it legitimately looks like it's all fucking shot on a a moving boat in the middle of the ocean. Right. Well, it's like the the bit where the wife is mm-hmm. climbing the the flimsy little plank to get onto the boat for the first time, and you can. It's like in, in my mind's eye, I'm like, okay, there's. There's a handful of PAs on a smaller <laughs> boat on the opposite side of the boat that are just pushing it, and that's why it's yeah. swaying so much. Like I don't think they naturally yeah, were able sure. to accomplish that. But or a like lot of the stuff it like ropes in the ocean, and even like when they're there's like scenes where they're like you know where they have to get off the boat and get to the island, they're like wading through the water. I'm like, this is legitimate. Like they're you know, it's probably really fucking hot. Hmm. 
Well, I think there's also a difference mm-hmm. between a boat being docked and just swaying in place and a boat sailing on the ocean yeah. and maybe only swaying when there's like a big wave or something. So, but I will say it's like Cloverfield at first because you like go from everything's locked down and not handheld at all <laughs> on when they're in the suburbs and then you get onto the boat and like your brain has to get used to the swaying of it so you don't get I did get slightly disoriented when they first got on the boat and maybe that was intentionally the artistic I think decision it's probably the latter, or maybe but, it was just the nature uh, yeah, of shooting on a fucking um, boat I mean yeah, let's not give this movie too much credit. It, it, I mentioned to you, it seems yeah, like the yeah, script sure. was written like, I, I am, I'm you, not going like, to, yeah, um, if that. Even though I like this movie a lot, and uh, you know, I watched it, and, and you know, I, I fully acknowledge that uh, nostalgia is a big is a big factor for me uh, with this movie because I did watch it when I was a, a youngin, and um, it's it's come up a bunch of times in my life. But you probably saw this movie the year it came out when i was i don't know if i saw this movie when it came out but i i saw this movie definitely like some somewhere in the like mid to early nine yeah oh you were only five four or five when it came out so yeah probably not you you probably didn't see the movie with boobs uh underage drinking uh, cigarette smoking. So and I, 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 I can tell you very for a fact, Greg, that use of the uh, when I did see it, uh, I did see the TV version, which included the uh, drinking, the 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 underage drinking and cigarette smoking, but not the boobs and not uh, mm. the the we're all fucked line. Is that or we're all gonna fucking die? I think is what he says. Um, yeah, right. those part those parts were a shock to me later yeah. in life when I ended up like buying it on Blu-ray and, and not not even Blu-ray. I don't know if they ever released a Blu-ray on DVD. And um... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is odd because there's a well, lot. It's of not on Disney Plus. I can tell you that. Um... <clears throat> well, they did edit out uh, Daryl Hannah's titty in. Uh, oh, really? Whatever that mermaid movie was, I can't well, remember the name of it. I mean, I guess that's fair, but uh, yeah. yeah, Captain Ron, I mean, that was like. It makes sense that they cut out the shower scene, though, because it is very much just like a slapstick comedy scene and doesn't really add anything to the plot. It's, to, it me, it, just like, to me, it felt we're gonna like we're going to do uh, all these boat gags Mary Kay places for like 30 minutes in that scene, like was felt to me an awful lot like, you know. Are you sure you're not going to see my boobs in this scene? Well, no. You're pressed so close together. There's no. We have the thing from overhead. You won't see it. There's no way. You're sure. You're sure. Well, I'm. I'm here's the thing with that is that I wasn't. I, I didn't know what Martin Short had going on in terms of pecs, <laughs> and so I thought maybe at first because I didn't realize she was a member of the itty bitty titty committee. That nope. maybe he had some weird saggy nips, nips, and that's what we were seeing. But nope, those are female nips in a in yeah. a PG thirteen movie that should be like PG. It's so it's such an yeah. odd, yeah. Like, it's like it's obviously contradiction like, of a movie. It shouldn't be exclusively for adults. Like it's it's a goofy family movie. Like it's it's about a family, so it's like it, it makes no sense to have that stuff in there. So like, I remember like seeing it when I had it like. I think I bought it on DVD and like showed somebody else. Oh man, you got to see this movie, Captain Ron. Like I, I watched it when I was a kid. It's fucking hilarious. And, like you know, showed it to somebody and they're like, "What the fuck?" And it, like, and I, and I, I was like, "What?" I was like, "I don't remember there being boobs in this movie," and I don't remember him like saying "fuck." Um, 
But the fuck thing was okay. Like it was the boobs. It was like really just like oh, this is like one hundred percent unnecessary. But I, I do think. Yeah, when that happens, you're like, yeah. whoa, this movie is not no. going the direction it, I thought it was going to. But then again, it doesn't linger on it very long. Yes. If anything, the daughter um, is more sexualized than the like, wife in she's, this movie. The wife is sexualized by Captain Ron a lot. And thank God, like, he doesn't sexualize the daughter much. Like, there's that initial misunderstanding. Well, with the video camera, he does he's, a little bit with the video the wife's camera, yeah. But not hers. I, I rewatched this movie the other day. They but, are initially, but both but butts zooms, are in the shot. He does zoom in. He on zooms the into butt. the wife's, and then. But I, it is a little I, bit I, of a Kevin Smith for that because yoga hosers moment. Knowing that this is an early '90s movie, it could it could have gone either way, and it's like one of those movies where <laughs> when I was like showing it to people, my wife included, you know, in in more like recent years, I was like, oh shit, is this going to be like one of those, you know, comedies mm-hmm. that I liked in the '90s? that now is going to be like so wildly inappropriate that I'm going to feel like a, yeah, exactly. Like I'm going to feel like, yeah, like post me too. just didn't like age well saying that I like this movie. Thankfully, Captain Ron, um, steers clear of a lot of the, the sort of more major, like, you know, um, awful, uh, cliches of the, some of those nineties movies. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was weird seeing her boobs. And I do think it was like one of those situations where, <clears throat> she uh probably didn't think she was gonna gonna show her boobs on in the movie it just kind of so happened that they were out mm-hmm. in that scene and then the director and editor were probably like oh sweet man let's keep that in we actually got some boobs in this i i feel like it's just sign the contract if it slips out then it's in the movie you signed the contract <laughs> So like yeah. you didn't have a non-nude clause. But I don't think it's like yeah, it it, it lends absolutely nothing to the movie. Thought it's, about that. It's, uh, it's weird. It's it's it, it feels very out of place. Uh out of right. Well, we've been <clears> talking <throat> about it for 5 minutes, so maybe that's not the best sure, way to yeah, indicate it's like that the it only is thing a we're very talking about. minuscule part um, of the film. It's just it's so but it is worth mentioning. There isn't much yeah. story for like the first 45 minutes. Like the actual scene where they there is like a bit of like a uh, Robert mm-hmm. Altman like Woody Allen sort of energy to this movie with like the the breakneck yeah. pace of the dialogue sometimes overlapping, um, and so it never really feels like scenes ever have a chance to settle. It just kind of feels like one long mm-hmm. like anxious stream of consciousness to a certain extent. But it's also like once they get on the boat, there's like a solid twenty to thirty minutes where literally nothing happens yeah. in the story. It's just like boat gag after boat gag over and over and over until finally they stop on a, I think at one point they get lost and then they end up on like an island somewhere and they run into some gorilla uh, fighters. <laughs> so this is where my, my script correction yes. segment is going to start, if, if, if you'll indulge me. Uh, Martin Short goes for a walk on the island mm-hmm. to clear his head because Captain Ron is trying to cuck yeah. his wife. Um, or cuck him rather with his wife and then he just bumps into these guerrilla fighters and then it just cuts to them all being on the boat and they're like oh yeah captain ron talked him out of it and i got to live and all that stuff and it's like <laughs> you didn't fucking show it the 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 what you do in a movie is you show and you don't tell okay it's like you could have very easily had a whole scene where you know you're at gunpoint and then captain ron runs in whoa home 
relax, dudes. It's totally cool. I'm with this guy. Like, we can, you know, and then they talk about the whole deal, and then they don't have to just recap it for the characters later on the boat because the <laughs> audience already saw it. But, of course, they didn't do that. They just didn't show it, and it's like, dude, if you're going to do a movie like this, that's, like, <laughs> one of the scenes that you write and do. It's, like, so yeah, easy I... to do that. Like, you shoot it literally in the woods. <laughs> you don't even have to leave land, like it's like it's it's kind of mind-numbing how they just didn't think of that it's like yeah. i maybe i'm so used to modern movie standards but it's like if you're gonna that's kinda, like any movie would I do that see scene. both and sides of that coin though because it's like and it's I, like I, I do agree with you like that yeah. it feels like it actually yeah. you know what let me let me uh finish that point because i think there's a scene mm-hmm. where it does work the cut actually works to serve the plot and comedy at the same time. And it's towards the end when the pirates catch up to them, they steal their boat and then it just right. cuts to them on like a uh, emergency raft in the middle of the ocean. Fine. Great. We don't need to see the pirates pillaging the ship and you know, the scared wife and daughter and all that. Mm-hmm. You just cut right to them in the raft and your brain <laughs> fills in everything. That's a good cut. Cutting out the whole gorilla scene is not a good cut. <laughs> Cause it's, it's like, no, we want to see that. We it's the fish out of water thing where there's this white middle upper middle class guy dealing with these, you know, poor guerrilla fighters that yeah. are stranded on this island. Like that's that is comedy. You have to you're making a comedy movie do the most obvious thing besides <laughs> oh, we're in the shower and the mop fell on the door handle and now the water's filling up and we dropped the washcloth down the drain and like all these silly little gags and it's like Okay, but you have the opportunity to have an entire scene that advances the plot and is comedically entertaining, and they just didn't do it. So again, it makes me wonder if there's like some sort of director mix-up that just wasn't reported in the commentary or trivia or whatever, that stuff like that got just left out when it's like, ah, you could so very easily make this a better movie, and it wouldn't be so sure. like sure. yeah, I mean, uh, negatively received by critics, you know? And so my other my other thing I want to get to is just the family themselves. I think if you actually mm-hmm. fleshed out the family individually, like gave each individual family member their own arc. Of yeah. course, I think Harvey is the only or his, no, his name his, is Martin Harvey. Harvey. Yeah. His name is Martin Short in real life and Martin Harvey in the movie. So Martin has his arc, which is he doesn't like Captain Ron and he wants his family to stay together and, you know, everyone have a good time and mm-hmm. all that. So he's fine. I mean, of course, they could give him more to work with. But as far as having the bare minimum of a character arc, they fulfill that. The other three members of the family, the mom, the daughter, and the son, are all basically the same person. Except they have, like, very slight personality differences that I feel like if you just added Mm -hmm. a little more to each character to differentiate them or to, like, make them their own person that it would have worked better. Like the daughter's whole thing, right? Is that the first time we see her, she's come home with this like scumbag punk rock guy. And she's like, guess what guys, we just got engaged. And that's like the joke that the wife was like, I don't know why we would ever be able to convince her or any one of us to go out in the middle of the ocean and spend time away from everyone we know. And then the joke is, Oh, our daughter's engaged. Hard cut to us uh, out on the pier going to get on the boat for the first time. But they don't really do anything Mm -hmm. with that. Like, she gets a tattoo off camera, and she's partying with this, like, foreign guy. And so here's my Mm -hmm. idea. 
they run into the guerrilla army fighters. They get on the boat, mm-hmm. and then they don't interact with the daughter at all, or the mom, really. And it's like, okay, first thing you should do is you write a character who's like someone who's her age, like maybe the son of the lead guerrilla fighter. And then they have like a little thing where they're attracted to each other but can't be together because of circumstance. That would fulfill her arc mm. of being like the ditzy teenage girl who easily falls in love um, as well as yeah. matching the setting of the story that they're telling, you know? Like that that could have been a whole thing and then maybe Captain Ron could have been like, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you can be attracted to a dude but you really gotta just wait for the right guy to come along who really cares yeah. about you and isn't just into you for sex. Like none of that's in the movie. It just just add that little little bits and pieces in there, and that mm. would have worked. My other thing would have been uh, the son, who is barely a character in the film. Uh, the only thing he does is he plays Monopoly, and he drinks beer mm. when Captain Ron gives it to him and charges him for it or something like that. Um, but he doesn't really do anything in the rest of the movie. And so I'm like, okay, he's like a little kid with spiky hair in the 90s, <laughs> Maybe he's like, oh, I want to be a pirate when I grow up. That's badass and cool. And, like, Captain Ron could be, like, that way to, like, oh, he's being tempted mm-hmm. by the the this, like, fantasy life that doesn't exist because you look at Captain Ron, he's a fucking loser who probably doesn't pay taxes and stuff like that. So, like, you could use Captain Ron as, like, his way to both admire the thing and then have the arc of going from being like, wow, this is cool to like, Oh, I don't want anything to do with being a pirate because then, you know, you get into all this stuff and you know, your life's in danger and all this, which I guess is implied in Mm. the ending when they're on the chase on both land and sea. But it's like, again, he doesn't really have any of that himself as a character. He is just the son. He's the eight year old (laughs) kid and there's nothing else to him. And then the wife, I don't even really know. I think I guess her arc is fine as it is with the whole like teasing mm. thing with uh, Ron trying to like you know putting his arms around her and then at the end when the they save the day and everything he just like straight up French kisses her in front of the <laughs> husband and then they just they're just like oh, oh, okay fine let's move on uh, so yeah it's just like just these little basic ingredients that could have very easily fixed this movie when I'm watching it just stand out to me and mm. it was like. Most bad movies, or you know, quote unquote bad movies, uh, when I watch them, don't I don't often have that sort of like, <laughs> you know, eureka moment. But that just that just stuck out to me when watching this movie. It was just like you just you just add these little pieces, and no, it no. it would have probably made its budget back. Yeah, I don't even think it, it did. I think it was no. like five million. Uh, I agree. Budget yeah. in box. No, I definitely agree with everything you said there. Well. That would have made a better movie so, for sure. Um, I think like you know. It, like I said before, it's it's difficult for me because like you know it comes out of a place of nostalgia for me and everything. But for me, like the movie is like in a weird way, it's a character study of like Captain Ron. It's just this kind of goofy stoner character um, that I just I personally find hilarious to to just witness. Um, I think that like in terms of character arcs from the family, it's like yeah, that would have fleshed out the movie more, but. I, I think for what it is, like, w- would the movie be good no matter what? Like, I think I think it's kind of like one of those almost dispensable movies where it's like, you know, you've got or disposable movies where it's like y- you've got a very just like, OK, we have a goofy character. And it's like there's not many comedies, I think, that are made these days where it's just like 
you got this goofy guy and that, that that's it you know like the, the screenwriter goes to the studio what's this movie it's just we got this guy he's like you know like he's just goofy and like everyone's got to deal with that oh it's fantastic all right here's you know however many million dollars you need Right, he's the he's yeah. the wild man, and and the family man is the straight man, and it's the yeah, basic exactly. comedy it's like, uh, know, juxtaposition, um, dichotomy, what have you. Yeah. Conceptually, it's it's not a bad idea for a movie. It's it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, that it and I, isn't I think that they probably didn't it's realize like, you could have really done something because I, I don't like because imagine like if this movie was made with anyone else other than Kurt Russell as Captain Ron, it like it would be t- probably sh- fucking shitty, and so it's like. Yeah. Kurt, well, yeah, it's like I was saying, vacation, right? This is a vacation movie. Uh, yeah. Martin Harvey is Clark yes. uh, Griswold, and Captain Ron is just Cousin Eddie, which is even more fascinating that there's a Christmas vacation <laughs> to Cousin Eddie's Island Vacation, where I don't think Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo even show up at all, but they have the original daughter that played, mm. or the original actress that played the daughter, I think Audrey is the character's name, and that movie and then everyone else is just you've never seen them before and it's basically completely disconnected from the vacation movies mm. so it's like the fact that this existed before that is just kind of it's bizarre because they were yeah. still making vacation movies like theatrically it was, it was, it's when like this came the times. out like they, like there was a lot I of just, like i mean like uncle i don't know Buck what they were like thinking. you know what about bob and all these movies of just like some unpleasant character showing up and then just people having to deal with it it's like that that was almost a genre of its own and it's like i don't i don't know yeah like like the movie would have flopped a lot harder if it had anybody else playing captain ron and i think it in in if you were to look at like a movie like captain ron without kurt russell as captain ron like the idea of trying to flesh out auxiliary characters like wouldn't even matter because it was like this movie fucking sucks and it's obviously like this this one gag so like who even cares about this other stuff i think like you know 100 percent. Right. and well he uh, definitely you know, carries the whole to... movie on his back for sure <laughs> yeah even when he's not in it you know for yeah. a fact you're gonna see um, him again characters like so, the sun it's worth stuff, you know through. like it's 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 a pretty obvious like simon birch meets meets like the kid from jerry Maguire meets like Bart Simpson sort of, you know, kind of uh, archetype. Actually, I think the kid from Jerry Maguire and Simon Birch are the same kid. I might be might be mistaken, but they, they look like the same kid. I'm going to believe oh, you because wow. I've seen well, neither uh, of them. I have not been shown You might have money. to do a Jerry Maguire episode because yeah. uh, I'll tell you right now, it's not a good movie, but there's a lot to be said about that movie. <laughs> It, it's kind of like I the mean, worst movie ever Oscar. made in a way because it's shit. like all about this fucking piece of shit called Jerry Maguire who basically just manipulates everybody around him and uh, they trick the audience into thinking that he's a really like fucking romantic dude that everyone should kind of like aspire to be with. Yeah, but he's actually like a complete piece of garbage. Because it's Tom Cruise. Um, but anywho, with uh, Captain Ron, yeah, I think like definitely there could have been some amendments that would have made the movie like a better, you know, movie. But I think for like this kind of just slapstick character study mm-hmm. of like, you know, I mean, like I, I kind of look at it almost like, you know, when, when you get like a celebrity guest on like SNL or something and they're playing some character and you're like, oh, this is funny seeing them in this new light or whatever. Right. 
Because, like, yeah, it's like a movie. It's like if a skit from <laughs> SNL worked great on the night, and then Lorne Michaels is like, I'm going to put $25 yes, million dollars exactly. That's what Captain making Ron this an like, hour and a half. I, I don't hate it because it's like, I, I feel like personally the stakes are low, and it's, it's one of those movies where. You know, like I'll watch it and I'm just laughing at how, like, kind of how ridiculous this character is and how well uh, Kurt Russell's playing playing that character. Um, Captain Ron, honestly, like if, if Captain Ron was a real person, I think like me and yeah. Captain Ron would get along real well. I, I I could see making a friend of that guy. No. Oh, for sure. Well, like I wouldn't want to be on a boat with him, but I would totally hang out as well. You know, on it's land, the the perception of of him being so right. aloof all the time. Um, makes people constantly question his his actual abilities, but he demonstrates again and again that he's actually pretty competent as a boat captain. And it's like, yeah, but he also gives like Martin Short's character the room he needs yes, to prove that, himself yeah. as his own, you know, alpha yes. male head of the family. Which is, I think, why the mm-hmm. ending really works is because he fakes like Captain Ron fakes a broken leg. So that Martin Short will, you know, step up and save the day, even though behind the scenes, Kurt Russell's calling in the, or Captain Ron's calling in yeah. the U.S. Coast Guard over the radio to actually save the day. But it's like the mm-hmm. fact that the guy, that the dad took charge and became the captain, um, it all works. I, I think from the moment that Captain Ron shows back yeah. up when they're on land after they fire him and all that, when they're yeah. in Cuba or whatever to the end of the movie is like great. I wouldn't change a thing about it. I think it, it all works really well. <laughs> and, um, dude, I'm gonna shit my Captain Ron has that we effect on people. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much. Yeah, I will say there's one joke that really made me laugh in the movie, and that's when he's like, he saves them in the car, and he's like, "We gotta hurry before the police show up." Grand Theft Auto is a biggie around these parts. I was like, okay, that's funny. And then the gag where the the guys are chasing him in that big truck. <laughs> And then they had to keep doing the three-point turns just to turn yeah. the tight corners in the little Cuban town. I was like, this is great. I feel like there's a lot of like, I, I like wish the rest of the movie had Captain been Ron this will make that just make me chuckle, even if they're not necessarily funny, just the delivery that the Kurt Russell, you know, has. Yeah. It is yeah. a bit of a dry 90s uh, yeah, tone sure. at times. Like, um, yeah, I think they there's sneak not up much else sometimes. we can really say about this movie. It's, uh, I would say, yeah. Yeah, I gave it a five out of ten. Where it's like, it, there are some things you could fix that would make a it goofy, like a like classic in comedy, my eyes, but it just doesn't hit that level. It, it ranks pretty high for me. Like if you're if you have nothing to do, you don't want to watch a movie that's gonna like involve any serious thought. Watch Captain Ron get stoned, have like six to twelve beers, and I'm sure you'll find something kind of funny about it. No. Don't, especially and don't uh, get on a boat after ingesting all that so yeah right because he probably will match all righty all <laughs> right well i would still recommend it at least for the last half hour um maybe if you have yeah. the ability to watch it like 1.5 speed then that'll work but um yeah i i won't say <laughs> i was disappointed that you yeah recommended i'd say it's, it's worth like the I'm watch it's it uh, it's goofy it's stupid it's Captain Ron. All right, well, Check it out. Yep. And that's going to do it for episode three. I am going to go uh, take a huge dump. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next month, and then we might take a few know. months off, uh, depending on how life turns out. Uh, but that's it. Thanks for listening to A Musician and a Filmmaker. Uh, we'll see you next time.
Adios, amigos.